take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. It's Monday, May the 29th. Today is Memorial Day. So a happy Memorial Day. And I know many people don't say happy Memorial Day. We're going to talk about why we do. I'm bringing on a very special guest today. His name is Garrett O'Boyle. You may have seen him in congressional testimony. And um, he and I have kind of a different take on Memorial Day and why we call it that and why we would say happy in that case. So uh, stick around for just a second here. I do want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors. Uh, particularly our most patriotic sponsor. Let me show this up here on the screen. This is Patriot Coolers. Patriot Coolers give money back to veterans. You can use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. You can get 10% off, free shipping over 50 bucks. And you'll know that your donations, I'm sorry, that your uh, your purchase is actually going to fund a donation to veterans who have come home. Obviously, today is about those who have given the ultimate sacrifice, but those who have come up to the line, lost parts of their body, lost some of their mobility, lost their... Uh, chances to enjoy freedom in the same way that you and I do, you can support them by uh, supporting Patriot Coolers, who are one of our favorite sponsors. And then uh, secondarily, and maybe most importantly, I want to say thank you to Catholic Vote. Catholic Vote is the marquee and sustaining sponsor. They are the ones that are keeping the lights on at the Seraphim household in a big way. They came through, and they have a, a fantastic email list you can join up to. It's free. Um, it is known as The Loop. You can sign up for The Loop, and you'll get information in our fight in this country for faith, family, and freedom, protecting the most important things that we have, catholicvote.org. Um, they are right now in the middle of a lawsuit working with Judicial Watch, suing my former employer, the FBI, and they are suing them to get information about what sort of infiltrations the FBI is involved in with Catholic churches. And as I've said many times on this show, I believe that their infiltration of Catholic churches was just an open door to come in and mess with Christianity as a whole. It is an enemy of people who believe that the G in God should be replaced with the G in government. CatholicVote.org, very important, as mentioned in our live chat just a moment ago, they are standing up against the, United, uh, the L.A. Dodgers, who invited a very sacrilegious uh, trans drag group that was coming in, including a former member of the Biden administration, this guy, Sam Brinton, who many of you will know as the world's most famous luggage thief. Uh, CatholicVote.org bringing a lot of these things to the forefront, and they are doing fantastic work. You can donate if you want to be part of their cause, but you can also just get the information from them. So thanks to CatholicVote.org. Okay, folks, uh, we are bringing on a fantastic human being. He is uh, larger than life in many ways. I think he probably stole the show at the congressional hearings uh, just two weeks ago. His name is Garrett O'Boyle. He is a former United States Army infantryman. He was awarded the Combat Infantry Badge for ground combat uh, in service of this country, defense against America's enemies. He served both in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was a local police officer in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Many of you are familiar with that from a most horrific car attack that happened a couple years back around Christmas. And, um, and then he served in the FBI, where he was in the, the uh, Wichita Resident Agency, which is subservient to the Kansas City Field Office. He was a member of the Joint Terrorism Task Force there. He was also 
uh, selected to be on their SWAT team. I'm giving a lot of his background and bio. He's going to tell you more about who he is. I want you to be able to kind of see this. This is the kind of man that Garrett is. I'm going to show you a quick clip of him testifying, and then we're going to bring him on. And uh, folks, if you want to say something in the chat, if you want to share a message with Garrett, you can use a Rumble rant. Those are always uh, an easy option. And uh, I will be trying to monitor it as I listen to Garrett. But let's get his testimony. This is just about 30 seconds of his five-minute opening address, which I think set the tone for the way that this hearing ended up going. So let's listen to this real quick. I'm sad, I'm disappointed, and I'm angry that I have to be here to testify about the weaponization of the FBI and DOJ. Weaponization against not only its own employees, but against those institutions and individuals that are supposed to protect the American people. I'm here today because even though I'm wrongfully suspended from the FBI, I remain duty-bound to the American people to play my small role in rectifying these issues. After all, I never swore an oath to the FBI. I swore an oath to the Constitution. And that is the kind of man that Garrett O'Boyle is. Garrett, welcome to the show, bud. Um, I see you are sporting the Last Line Strength shirt. People have asked me where they can buy them. They have to go to you. I'm uh, really happy to have you on the show so much. Uh, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Kyle. And uh, as for the shirts, we'll have to figure something out because they've been sitting in a box for a few years. And, you know, maybe we can get into the origins of Last Line at some point as well. I would love that. I would absolutely love it. All right. Let's tell people where you grew up, where you're from. Give people a background on how you ended up in front of Congress. Let's just kind of take it step by step. All right. So grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I lived uh, most of my adolescent years probably, you know, five, 10 minute drive from the Milwaukee airport. And uh, yeah, I, I grew up uh, two brothers. I have a twin brother and a, a brother who's about 13 months older. And yeah, I mean, it's yeah, we're just a typical blue collar family. You know, we I don't come from money. I don't come from from much of a, you know, I, I don't have a silver spoon like Dan Goldman. You know, he's, he, he came out of the womb with one in each hand and one in the mouth. But uh, not me. And I never thought I would be in this position. Um, you know, I, I guess so, I've always had this. I, I blew it. Uh, apparently, apparently the sound was still off. So we're going to give it a second to make sure that the sound catches up. I'm not hundred percent sure why it's not capturing. Um, give me one second here to make sure this is the, uh, the classic doing a live show on your own without all of the, uh, the help. There's no fill today. Give me. <laughs> all right, folks, tell me if we got sound here. And it's back. All right, good. <laughs> I don't know what button is being pressed, but it's uh, it's like it's yeah. messing with us here. All right, so it's Garrett, unfortunate all those uh, spellbounding things I was saying are now lost in the ether forever. That's right. Well, luckily for you, I've captured all of it on the console, so those who are listening <laughs> to the uh, replay will catch this and they'll know that we screwed it up. All right, folks, thanks so much for your patience. Garrett is going to tell us where he grew up, how he ended up uh, in front of uh, Congress, and. He might even take another jab at Dan Goldman, who has uh, decided to anoint himself as a nemesis. Okay, my friend, send it. You grew up right. in, in Wisconsin, outside of Milwaukee. I will let you carry yep. on. My, my apologies for a, yep. a sound failure again. Uh, so, yeah, Milwaukee, Wisconsin is where I'm from, where I grew up. We're uh, living just outside of Milwaukee now. We're in Waukesha County, so uh, not too far and uh yeah just uh you know i have a twin brother and a brother who's 13 months older than me and we grew up like a lot of kids in our generation you know riding our bikes like all summer long and hey just come home when the lights when the street lights turn on and uh when i think back to those years i can't really pinpoint 
um, much that really stands out is what put me on this path um, where, you know, I, I've, I've always had this uh, strong uh, sense of, of justice and right and wrong. I think a lot of that can be attributed to my faith. And uh, growing up, uh, there was uh, some kids older than us who uh, would bully us. And um, I, I've never liked bullies. You know, I, I know I mentioned uh, Representative Goldman uh, when we were muted, but I'll mention him again here. Um, he's a bully. He sat up there trying to bully me and the other whistleblowers and has done the same ever since the end of that hearing. And I'm not going to back down uh, to him or to the FBI or to anybody else that uh, is going to try to silence us, lie about us, um, distort the truth, even flat out lie about the truth. Uh, I've, that's never sat well with me. And, you know, by no means am I perfect. I'm not. I'm a sinful human, just like everybody else that came before me and everybody else that will come after. Uh, but uh, seeking after the truth and being rooted in God's word um, is really the cornerstone for that. It doesn't mean I'm um, not a, a perfect human, because I certainly am not. But yeah, so growing up, uh, you know, I, I, I never could have thought that I would be in a position like this. And 9-11, I guess, is a, is a marquee moment. Um, I was a freshman in high school. I was like 15 years old when that happened. And pretty much ever since that day, I thought, what can I do uh, going forward in my life to give back to this great nation? And um, that was really what set me on, on the path overall. So shortly after high school, I ended up enlisting in the Army. And uh, a really good friend of mine, my best friend growing up, um, he had had previously enlisted himself, and I'm sure that played a role where I was like, you know what, he's doing it. If I don't do this, this is what I kept coming back to. If I don't do this now, when I'm 40, I'm going to look back and regret not doing it. It was the the opportunity I had, uh, you know, our generation, our generation's war. And uh, so, yeah, I signed up for the Army, and I did pretty good on the ASVAB to the point where my recruiter was like, uh, you can do literally any job you want, even the ones I told you that were closed, you can do those. So are you sure you want to still enlist in the infantry? And I was like, yeah, there's for me, there's no other option. That was that was it. And that's, uh, that's where the fight was. Yeah. So that's what I did. And um, off I went to Fort Benning. And that's what I'll always call it. I think I saw on on your Twitter, somebody's trying to tell you that the name has changed, but it, right. that name will never change for me. And uh, so, yeah, off the Fort Benning, I go for basic training in 2006. Uh, after that, I get assigned to Fort Wainwright, Alaska, of all places. And uh, I would say half my platoon or so, maybe a little bit more than that, um, got sent there. And then we scattered to the winds for the most part to different battalions when we got up there. But um, I was there for a year or two, probably. Uh, yeah, roughly, probably about two years uh, before we deployed to Iraq. And I was in the 25th Infantry Division up there. It was a striker brigade and went to Iraq for a year, got back. While I was in Iraq, uh, I get promoted to sergeant um, ahead of my peers, which uh, was cool. And at that point, I thought, you know what? I really like this. Um, that first deployment, I was like, I think I could do this for a career, especially if I'm being deployed all the time. Um, that you know, That might sound weird to people, but uh, I didn't have a family back then. Uh, Heidi and I weren't even dating yet. But um, I loved it, and especially once I finally got to deploy, I was like, yeah, I could do this if I'm going on rotations every couple of years. 
And then, uh, so yeah, I re-enlist shortly after I get promoted and I'm like, yeah, I think this could be it. And then, uh, I come home. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but, uh, this is where Heidi and I uh, reconnect. So just on Facebook and I think she had just heard from a family friend or something because, um, your listeners probably don't know this, but, uh, my wife and I, we've uh, known each other for a long time since we were probably like 13, 12, 13, 14, so, somewhere in there. And, um, when I'm in Iraq, she hits me up on Facebook, just like, Hey, I heard you are in the military now. And somebody told me you you're deployed to Iraq. Like, just, you know, thank you for, uh, for doing what you're doing. She, she still asserts to this day that, uh, there was no intention, uh, to, to sweep me off my feet. And, uh, and I didn't think there was either, you know, cause that's like, yeah, she's just a family friend or, you know, just kind of the same circles. But, uh, we message back and forth on, on Facebook and I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm actually coming to Wisconsin for two weeks. I, I'm getting mid tour leave in like a month. Want to hang out, you know, like I'd like to see in person. And so we end up doing that. Um, I was one of the, the last people to go on mid tour leave from that year long deployment. And my, my leave ended up, um, uh, encompassing, uh, July 4th. So it was like, the end of June and the beginning of July were the two weeks I got to go home. And I saw her like either the, the day before the fourth or the, the day of, or the night of the fourth or something we hung out. And then, uh, yeah, from there we essentially like started dating, uh, at that point, even though like I was just about to head back uh, to Iraq, but, uh, Hey, it worked out. And now we have four beautiful daughters. And, uh, I would say that even through this difficult season, um, our relationship has never been stronger where we've been uh, growing closer together, uh, and closer to God. And, uh, for that, you know, we are, we are humbled and grateful because, uh, we know that, uh, we only deserve death because we're, we're sinners and, uh, we're, we're grateful that you know, Christ died on the cross for us. And, uh, by his grace said, you know what, turn to me and believe in me and your sins will be cleansed. And if it wasn't for that, I really don't know if we'd be here. You know, it's been, as you know, you, you have a very similar situation, it, it, many difficult days, many, many difficult times. So, uh, but you know, hopefully things continue to, to look up going forward. And so, yeah, where am I? So I go back, eventually I redeploy back I'm, to a lot. I'm going to grab the reins here. I'm going to pull you back. Cause I got a couple of questions. I'm, I'm storing that. Okay. I wanted to let you get that stream. Cause it was a good start. Um, yeah. one of the things that I, I want you to, to share with folks, there is a major difference in the way that your life and your siblings lives have gone. You're, you're one of three brothers, correct? Correct. Tell us a little bit about what your brothers do. You know, you, you guys are all, you said you're the smallest of all these guys <laughs> and, and you're a, yeah. a pretty big guy by most comparison. Just kind of give people an insight into that if you would. Sure. So, uh, growing up, um, my brothers and I, cause, uh, my twin, you know, we're the same age, I'm a minute older than he is. And, uh, then our, our older brother, he's 13 months ahead. So, uh, we were pretty close growing up and. Uh, we always had somebody to play with because we were all essentially the same age. And as we grew uh, older, it, it turned into lots of basketball uh, in our teen, our teenage years. And, you know, my twin, um, he's always been a little different. And uh, he, um, you know, we don't, nobody always makes the right decision. Um, but I think he has struggled with that in his life more than most. And, uh, even now as we sit here, he's actually incarcerated, uh, for violating his parole. And, uh, he's, he's been, he's been back in uh lockup since Thanksgiving morning. 
And prior to that, he had been out of prison for about, I want to say like two years. And uh, before he got out of prison, he had been locked up for like eight. And he, uh, so, I mean, you can, if you Google my name, a lot of this stuff might come up. So I I don't, I'm comfortable talking about it. I don't don't really care. But uh, he, uh, and this also actually almost hindered me from even getting hired by the FBI. Like they had a lot of questions about this, but um, he, he ended up stabbing a guy at a Dropkick Murphys concert in 2010, I think it was 2010 or 2011. I was kind of late in the game for Dropkick Murphys, by the way. Yeah. I I feel like I was was. listening to them when I was in in college, which would have been Uh a ways back. Yeah. So, um, you know, he ends up getting convicted uh, for, I think they got him for like attempted homicide. Um, He he should have taken the plea, to be honest. He probably would have done a year or less, but uh, he didn't. He thought he could win. And uh, yeah, so it's been a struggle for him. Um, So he, since his parole violation, which was like one of many, um, he, he's got to go, he's back for like three more years. So he's got like two and a half left. But, um, yeah, even I didn't know this. I started finding this out a little bit after. So it turned out that he had often used my name, uh, because he knows where we are twins. We have the same birthday. Our social security number is one digit different. Uh, so he actually engaged in lots of, uh, identity theft on me, uh, when he would get pulled over, uh, when he'd get arrested, uh, and things of that nature. And then, uh, I, I ended up finding out all of this later. And even when I was an FBI agent, I found out, uh, it was when he was getting out of prison. I found out another police department here, um, had, they had my name because he got pulled over and ticketed and he gave them my information. And so like, I had to call them to try to sort that out. But then they're like, Oh, the statute of limitations on the ID theft has passed. Um, you know, I, I'm sure they checked. I told them, I'm like, look, I'm an FBI agent. And they were probably like, yeah, right. And I was like, I, I actually am like, you can call Waukesha Police Department. You know, they'll they'll verify what I'm telling you. So I don't, I don't know if that detective ever did it. But once he got back in touch with me, he was he was real good about helping me uh, try to uh, avoid my brother um, uh, stealing my ID more once he was out of prison. So I don't know if that has happened uh, since he got out. But uh, but, yeah, it's been an interesting uh, road. Uh, we, we definitely have, uh, branched off in a different way. Uh, you know, he even, he also joined the infantry uh, right around the same time as I did. And, uh, he never deployed. He ends up getting, uh, chaptered out for being AWOL. Uh, so he was, he was stationed in Germany and he, um, was visiting in Wisconsin. He had married some other army recruit, like right before both of them shipped off to separate basic trainings, you know, standard, standard Joe, uh, stuff even before he was a Joe and, uh, <laughs> that is a Joe. So he's a, yeah. Isn't it? And, um, he, uh, so he's at Fort Riley, Kansas visiting his wife, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, I think he gets a, a DUI or gets into a fight. Anyways, he gets, he gets locked up on post and he misses his flight back to Baumholder, Germany. And so they, they put him a wall cause he's, you know, he, I think he's like five days late and uh, so he's AWOL, and then uh, some other stuff happened with him. I think he pissed hot once um, right before they deployed, and so they ended up chaptering him out. And then, you know, even, even since since then, like he engages in uh, like stolen valor stuff. Like I remember, I think it was when I um, came home from 
Iraq for my mid-tour leave in his closet in my mom's house is uh, the old Army ACU uniform. And he had combat patches on it and a CIB and sergeant rank. And I'm like, dude, what what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, um, I just have that set up, uh, just, you know, just because that's what my dream was. And that's, you know, what I wish how my life would have gone. And it's like, no, dude, you, you go and you wear that crap around on Memorial Day and July 4th so you can get discounts at Denny's, you know. And it's like, because what's weird is in that's, a lot of ways really, we have. That's really hard. Yeah. Especially It was you. really hard. Yeah. It was really hard for me at the time because I had just been promoted. I had just uh, um, re-enlisted. I'm home on mid-tour leave after being in Iraq for nine months now, and I got to go back for three more. And here he is just, you know, living essentially in mom's basement and like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm I'm Billy Badass and like, you know, and then lying to me on top of it. And it's like, dude, what the heck? Because then on on the on the other side, like he's a he's a really smart guy. And um, we have a lot of the same. Well, I'm sure part of it's because we were raised, uh, you know, side by side. But. We have a lot of the same beliefs, and um, it, it's weird, especially after just telling you some of the negative things about him. Um, we, in a lot of ways, we have the same sense of morality, but then oftentimes I think he just chooses his flesh and puts that first and uh, is real selfish because there are things he does or says where I'm like, man, that that's real. Like, um, he had never met my kids, right? Um, and I pretty much didn't even really talk to him while he was in prison. Uh, until right before he got out. And so the first time he met my daughters was at Christmas, like two, I think, yeah, like two, two Christmases ago. And uh, he got them all like really sweet gift. He didn't even know them, you know, and he, they loved like the gifts he got them. He was so happy uh, to give them the gifts. Uh, we end up talking later and he's like, Garrett, man, I, I was really, um, I was really apprehensive about about seeing you and, and meeting your family. He's like, you know, I, I mean, I know, I know Heidi, but I haven't seen her in a really, really long time. And I've, I've never met your kids. He's like, I was like almost having a panic attack on, on how I would react and, and what it would be like. And, um, so it's like, you know what, this, he's, he's like any human, he's, he's got feelings and, and dreams and wishes and regrets. And I'm sure, um, you know, uh, I won't get into too much, but he, he's, uh, he's got a daughter of his own and he, he's not seen her, um, since she was about Paige's age. And so, uh, I, you know, I know it's difficult, um, for him cause that, you know, his daughter is, uh, I think she's a teenager now and, uh, he, he hasn't seen, he hasn't seen her. He's been in prison most of that time. And then, um, uh, you know, his, his ex, I don't, I don't know if they were married or not, but, um, you know, the, the mom, you know, doesn't, doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And, uh, from what I know, it sounds like her and, and, uh, my brother's daughter are, are living a good life now. And, um, she got remarried and, you know, I, I, I'm certain he doesn't talk about it very often, but how could that not, um, strike you every time you see your nieces, you know, and, um, you know, what could have been, and, uh, you know, like I've talked about this, I forget which interview, but um, I think I'm still going through a bit of a mourning process uh, just over losing uh, the career in the FBI. Uh, that's been hard. You know, I've been carrying a gun uh, my whole adult life, essentially, for for work uh, as an infantryman, as a cop, and then as an FBI agent, right. then as a SWAT, a SWAT agent, too. And so I can only imagine uh, what it must be like for 
um, someone like my brother to be mourning uh, that loss of your daughter, you know, a child of yours. So, uh, yeah, that's a little bit about about him and, and uh, that background. And let me let me dig into that. Just a, just another kind of a thought, uh, a pivoting off there. Not a lot of FBI agents that I met had family members that had done time in prison. Certainly not someone so close as a as a twin shared a womb. Uh, do you think that changed the way that you looked at people that you arrested, people that you investigated? Did that bring empathy to the way that you did the the work? Yeah, I think it certainly did, um, because even even going back to my cop days, um, well, let, let me let me tell you a little story. I, got, I, I it was when I was on mid tour leave from Afghanistan. Now, so uh, Heidi and I, we were we we're dating actually. We were married. We are married by then. And um, we go out to meet some friends uh, who knew I was back in town for two weeks. And uh, we meet them at a bar, but I was really tired. I didn't have, I was like, yeah, I'm not drinking tonight, you know. And, uh, or no, I wasn't meant to relieve. It was when I was uh, PCSing from Wainwright to, to Campbell. It was in between there. And so um, I end up getting pulled over. And I'm like, okay, you know, what's this, what's he pulling me over for? And it, it, it was a standard DUI check. You know, I'm sure he like watched us leave the bar and he goes right off the bat. Hey, I pulled you over cause I couldn't see your license plate. And then knowing what I know now, it's like, okay, well now that you walked up on my vehicle and saw the license plate, you know, I have one. So that should end the interaction. Cause now it's a consensual interaction at that point. But I didn't know that then. And he didn't allow it to uh, be that then. And so then right off the bat, he says, how much have you had to drink tonight? And I was like, nothing. And he's like, well, you smell like a bar. And I was like, well, I did just leave that bar. And uh, he puts me through the ringer, uh, puts me through field sobriety tests. You know, I'm 20, 23 years old. So active, fit, infantry guy. And a after I do the, 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 the field sobriety tests, he tells me I failed them. And I'm thinking in my head, yeah, right. There's no way. And uh, then he's like, um, "Are you gonna Are you gonna consent to to a to a PBT, the uh, you know the uh, preliminary breath test?" And I was like, "Yeah, why not? I mean, like I told you, I haven't had anything to drink." And he's like, "I'm gonna give you one more chance. How much have you had to drink tonight?" And then at this point, I'm thinking in my head, "Man, maybe if I just tell him I had a beer, uh, you know, maybe he'll drop it." I'm glad I didn't tell him that. Well, one, it would have been a lie. And uh, two, it probably would have been worse off for me if I would have done that. Um, and so I, I stick to the truth and I'm like, no. And I give him a really good uh, breath sample in that PBT because I'm like, I don't have anything to hide here. And also knowing what I know now, at least in Wisconsin, you're not supposed to make your arrest decision off of what that PBT says. You're supposed to do it solely off of those field sobriety tests. So he already told me I failed those. So I give him this good breath sample. And he doesn't show it to me, but he shows it to his backup partner. And I saw it on his face. He's like, oh. And so I'm thinking in my head, like, you just got a really good sample. And I haven't had anything to drink. So I'm sure it's all zeros on there. And so then he cuts me loose um, after threatening to uh, arrest me and Heidi because she had the window down and was trying to listen. And so interactions like that, interactions like, because here, here we are again. Here's a cop who should never be a cop. He's a bully. And that's not what law enforcement is supposed to be in the alleged land of the free. And so, you know, as these uh, instances happen, and then, of course, with my brother always present in my mind, um, it certainly had an effect on on how I viewed 
uh, law enforcement um, in this nation. And, you know, I've I've uh, I've arrested a lot of people um, as a cop that cops cops do that. Um, thankfully, my police department um, let us use our discretion uh, greatly, which which is good. Um, and but, you know, like that story I just told you, there's all sorts of different type of people who become cops or FBI agents. And I don't think they're always um, thinking about the deeper effects of what their actions as a law enforcement officer might have. And having a brother in prison, having a brother who uh, lied about me to the police and uh, really caused uh, some strife in my life. Um, I mean, even including uh, when I would fly, I would have the quad S's on my boarding pass and uh, you know, I'd get jerked around by the TSA. I learned later, like, oh, this was probably because my brother used my name. And, um, you know, I have been angry and bitter about that uh, a lot. I, I used to be really, really angry and bitter about it. And now I'm at a point where it's like, you know what? My brother, just like me, is a, is a sinner. And uh, he has to rectify that uh, first with God and, and then uh, with me someday. But uh, when I see him, you know, I, I haven't seen him because he's been locked up again. But when I see him since he's been out of prison, I, I always just give him a hug and um, have conversation with him because it's like, what's the point of uh, holding on to that bitterness and that anger? And uh, we don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. Uh, this life is very finite. And do we want to let it go? And, um, you know, I don't want to die with regrets. I'm going to because that's just uh, the way of life. Um, but if I can just be a little, you know, have a, have a deeper perspective and a deeper thought process about, about my brother and about human beings in general, I think that's a, a net positive because it's going to help me be better as a human. And, uh, but yeah, you know, there were times when, you know, I'd be booking somebody into jail and they'd be telling me their, their story about how they, you know, why I can't go back to jail or prison or, or whatever. And so, yeah, you know, thinking about my brother, it happened a lot. And, um, I, you know, it's the balancing act of uh, the Constitution and upholding people's rights with enforcing the law when the law is violated, because um, it's important to, to be a nation that has laws, uh, because if someone just stormed into my house and uh, shot me, or kidnap my daughters or something like that, there should be a punishment for that. Like we can't just go around uh, doing whatever we want. And so my my perspective was always this, especially as a cop, it was, a, as you know, it's a little bit different as an FBI agent, but as a cop, it was always, if I can come to a reasonable solution that does not involve putting someone in handcuffs, that's option number one. And, and that was always how I operated. I knew guys who, their whole mission in life was to put handcuffs on as many people as possible. I don't think that's good. Um, I think there is a place for people like that in law enforcement to some degree, but the reins need to be pulled back on on, on that type of approach because uh, that's not the best solution all the time. But guys think, uh, I'm a cop, uh, I arrest people, so handcuffs and out the door with me you go. Where I would always be like, hey, let's separate these parties if we can just send them off, you know, with that one in that direction, that one in this direction, if they, there wasn't like a mandatory arrest situation or something like that, or oftentimes they just wanted to be heard. So just let them yell at you or take it out on you or complain to you about whatever the situation is. 
And then it's like, oh, I, f I feel better. And it's like, okay, so am I going to get called back here? Uh, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm good. And it's like, okay. And then you just clear the call and, you know, do your little update. And it doesn't always have to end in handcuffs. But um, so, so, yeah, it, it, it definitely had a, has had an impact on me and how I view the law and enforcing it. Has to. Makes perfect sense. Why did you choose to go to the FBI from a, from a police department? Why was that the next step? The X-Files. I always wanted to be Fox Mulder. And, uh, you know, it's funny because um, one of my guilty pleasures, it's, it's way less these days than when I was a kid. But um, I've always liked uh, science fiction. And so I think growing up, um, I, I really do think the X-Files had a role in that because that's where I was exposed to the FBI the most. And uh, because my mom, she, she uh, is a nurse and she used to work uh, night shift on the weekends. And I think it was on Sundays uh, when X-Files was on and my dad would always, he, he liked it too. So we would always watch it, me and my two brothers and, and our dad. And, um, but I guess like all jokes aside with uh, um, I want to believe and whatnot, um, you know, I'm a cop for four years. Uh, I had done the military thing and, uh, you know, I, overall the, um, the, the root work of being a police officer, I liked, it was important. Um, I, we'd have to ask some of my former colleagues. I, I've been back in touch with enough of them that I think, uh, they probably thought I was, I was at least decent at that job. Um, otherwise they probably wouldn't talk to me, but, um, and I wouldn't blame them for that. But, uh, uh, FBI. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a, I had been a cop for maybe two years where I thought maybe the FBI or going fed could be a possibility because once I got out of the army, I go back to school in Wisconsin to be a cop. You only have to have 60 college credits. I ended up getting 70, uh, because I finished off my associate's degree. And then I, I transfer to Marquette from that tech technical college and my junior year of college, while I'm at Marquette, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start applying uh, to, to police departments just to at least get some um, interviews. And I, I really ex didn't expect to get hired uh, early because back then in 2014, it was difficult to uh, become a cop uh, in southeastern Wisconsin. And when I got hired, I got hired with two other officers and I want to say there was over 100 applicants for that hiring um, phase. And they hired three people. It sounds and, like the FBI's kind of uh, numbers where they talk about how proud they are that they reject so many. Yeah, they love they love those numbers. When I was in Quantico, they would say, oh, it's statistically harder to get into Quantico than it is to Harvard. I don't know if that's true, but um, it's like, you know what? Most of the type of people the FBI hires, I don't think you need to pump up their ego right off the bat. But... <laughs> they do. There's a lot of ego in that. Uh, there's yeah. not a lot of ego in the way that you talk about things. Uh, I feel like you bring a lot of humility to it. Uh, what do you attribute that to? Um, my faith. It, it comes down to my faith. And, you know, um, I've, um, our faith, my faith has grown tremendously. Um, really in the last, I would say probably three years or so, especially, um, but certainly the last year and, uh, it's not always been easy. I mean, there have been very difficult times where it's, um, it, again, in my sinfulness, I'm like pleading despondently, like, why God, what, what, why is this happening? Like, what are you, why, what, what are you doing? And, uh, you know, I'm ashamed of that type of behavior, but, but um, 
yeah, I, uh, that's where the humility comes from. You know, it's, it's weird because like, I don't, I don't actively think like I need to be humble in this situation. I just think like, well, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. Um, heading into the hearing on Thursday, uh, probably the, the, the week prior. Um, and it's, it, this is how God works. I truly believe this. So at, at the church we've been going to, um, they have like a Bible verse that they memorize. I think they do like one a month because, you know, you only meet on Sundays. Um, there's, you know, anyways, the verse that the girls were memorizing, and I didn't know this until like the week before the hearing, was Second um, Timothy 1.7. And it says, um, basically, the Holy Spirit doesn't give you a spirit of fear, but of love and of or of power, of love, and of self-control. And I had been really reflecting on that verse and um, doing a deep Bible study with all the cross-references in my study Bible about that verse and about um, uh, the power that you receive from the Holy Spirit. And so that that's really where I attribute it to because it's like, it's, you know, I, I really believe that uh, just being rooted in that faith has allowed me um, just to just to be who, who I am. And uh, I want that to be uh, loving and um, glorifying to God. And what's funny about this, and there, there's some guys, I don't know if they would attest to it publicly because they still work for the FBI, but I used to say going into work, you got, because uh, these these two guys, well, and other guys that I worked with in Wichita, they're uh, professing uh, believers as well. And I would always say, you guys, I'm working on the love aspect. I really am working on it. And, and I was, I was doing a, a Bible study series and a sermon series uh, on love. And uh, because uh, one of my actual, actually like detractions is uh, I can be too, I lean, I lean towards the truth more. And I, and I think, I think, well, that's the truth. So it's the most loving thing that can happen. Um, but it, it's supposed to be, we're supposed to be salt and light, grace and truth. And so it's like trying to to balance those things, and uh, with Christ as our our primary example, it's like okay, I'm never going to be Christ-like, um, but he set the he set the example. So let, let me try to do my best to live that way, and and that's really what it what it boils down to. Fair. Let me let me uh, pivot a little bit. You've been characterized like so many others as a uh, malcontent, as a uh, as a lousy agent. Um, the experience of being being uh, maligned uh, in congressional testimony. But I'd like you to tell people sort of what you did from the time that you were assigned to the Wichita field office or the Wichita resident agency rather, and and you know what your your FBI service characterization characterizations looked like. You know your ratings, your your the casework and things like that. So people get kind of a sense of that. And um, and if you agree to any of the things that were sort of thrown your way in front of Congress, if there's anything that had any had any meat on the bone that that they uh, they alleged about you. Yeah, so I'll address that one first. Uh, no meat on the bone there. You know, they're just reading off the statements that were prepared by their interns or other staff. And the one that was really bizarre to me was, oh, what's her name? Uh, Sanchez, Texas, the blonde lady. Or Sylvia Garcia, maybe. Garcia, yep. So she literally is just reading, and I'm thinking... And not a very good reader, I noticed. No, and and she's, you know, you live in Texas, America, so when she says, in in Texas, we we say that's a lot of hot air, and it's like, 
if you're from, why did you have to read even that part? Like you couldn't have come up with the, this Texas quip on your own. The Texas but, quip, by the way, is all hat and no cattle. That's, that's what we would say. <laughs> yeah. So she doesn't even get it right. No, um, there's, I've never but, heard anybody say a whole lot of hot air. That's just an American <clears throat> thing. Yeah. And, and so, you know, she's saying, I, you know, I've, I've gone through your testimony and, and there's nothing here. And then she's asking me about uh, who was around or maybe, yeah, I think it was her asking me who was present at my deposition and trying to act like I only talked to the Republican side. And I, I was confused because I'm thinking in my head, like, am I missing something here? Because Dan Goldman's asking me if Cash Patel was there or, or if anybody else was around. And I'm like, because like I've said before, we were sworn in under oath to tell the truth. They weren't, by the way, but we were. That's right. And so I'm thinking in my head, what's he doing here? Or what are they doing? Why are they asking these questions? I'm sure they're trying to jam me up on something. And so I've, I've gone back and I watch it. And like I have kind of like a quizzical look on my face because I'm really thinking in my head, like, what are they getting at? No, Nobody else was there. <clears throat> so I'm like, well, <clears throat> excuse me, um, my lawyer, you know, who was sitting behind me. And I'm like, he was there. And then I'm like, well, Congressman Gates, he was there for part of it. And I'm like thinking, what are you getting at here? And then she's like, oh, so you only you only talk to your congressman in Kansas and Congressman Gates and the attorneys. And I'm thinking in my head, yeah, that's true. But your attorneys were there, too, because it was Democrat attorneys who leaked parts of my testimony to CNN and New York Times and um, Rolling Stone. So I'm like, I was very, very puzzled by that. And I, I really didn't understand the line of questioning or, or where they were going. And then it just kind of ended once she was done reading. Um, but uh, as for my FBI career, so my first year there, uh, actually is like my first month, um, I, I t uh, we get uh, we got a lead. Uh, I think it actually came from Kansas City. And they were like, oh, well, the the potential victim is down in Wichita. So we'll, we'll kick it down there and, what, and have what, them work it. What year was this? This was 2018. Okay. Uh, or uh, yeah, or, uh, very late 2018, like December, 2018. And, um, I get the Well, eventually my, my SSA, she kind of has a little, um, informal squad meeting just in our squad area. And is like, who, who wants it? And being the new guy, I'm like, well, I'll take that case because I'm the new guy that I've been the new guy before. The new guy is the one who volunteers to do everything. And it seemed it was weird because I remember like people being like, uh, uh, I'm on the JTTF. We uh, actually don't do any work. So don't don't assign that. I'm actually not here. Please don't see me. I don't want an extra case. So I'm like, no, no, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take that case. And uh, we're going to have to get into international terrorism. This was what you mean by the JTTF doesn't have any work. I'm excited to, to explore that with you in a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, we will. So, uh, yeah, so I take this case and it's essentially a murder for hire case. Uh, but there was um, an anti-abortion ideology attached to it. And you know what? This actually has ties to a prison. So I had a, I ended up getting this CHS who was an inmate. Um with the primary subject of the case. And so I was in and out of a prison a lot for the next year plus, maybe 15 months. Um, end to end, it probably, of real work, it probably took me 18 months uh, to do to really get close uh, to the end where then it was open 
um, you know, it was basically um, pending closing, but on um, CTD stuff, you can't have a pending case, like a, a, a pending closing case. So I had to get all my ducks in a row. And so it was, it remained open for a few more months until I could fully close it down. But uh, yeah, so I'm in and out of this prison. And that's also where I start um, thinking about my brother a lot and whatnot, because, you know, I have this CHS and tell people what um, that is, if you don't mind. CHS is a confidential human source. That's the terminology the FBI uses um, as uh, for for our informants. Uh, that's that's all it is. And uh, so yeah, I have the CHS in this prison, and you know, as any good um, CHS handler knows, like you got to have a good rapport, you got to develop a relationship, and um, but at the same time, it's like like sometimes he would call me not even about case stuff. He'd be like, man, I just, I just need somebody to talk to. And so I would, you know, I would talk to him sometimes in that way. Um, and, but yeah, I really learned a lot about prison life, um, through that case. And it ended up uh, being a lot of hot air, uh, as it were. So, um, we, uh, we eventually determined that the CHS was kind of trying to play both sides and, you know, he, he probably was the one who was convincing the primary subject that this could actually happen. And I think his main, his main goal was to try to, uh, get some time knocked off of his own sentence or, or something like that. But it, it ended up fizzling out. But along the way, we got, um, a title three wiretap on another subject who was living down in Texas, America, uh, who was really close, uh, to my subject. But then as we, uh, are doing the investigation, we discover that that guy had ties to all sorts of uh, anti-abortion extremists who were incarcerated. So we thought, you know what, maybe this guy does actually have a lot more influence and is, is has a lot more at play here uh, than we thought. So, um, you know, getting getting a Title III wiretap is not uh, easy, and it, it is not something that should be done lightly uh, because of the type of intrusion that it involves. And so my affidavit was like 75 pages long. And um, eventually we get it blessed off by DOJ and, well, by FBI and then by DOJ, and we go up on the wire. And because a judge, a judge uh, signed it. And we do the wire for 30 days. Uh, we had a UC uh, tried to tickle it a couple times, and there was really no indication that there was anything there. So uh, we end up not seeking a renewal on that Title III because it, 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 all that Title III showed us was that it was more likely than not that this guy wasn't involved with any type of plot. So we didn't make anything up. We didn't remove anything from an email like Kleinsmith did to get that FISA renewed. We uh, went back to the judge and said, hey, uh, our probable cause no longer exists uh, for this wiretap. So we're not going to be seeking a renewal. And um, we I learned later from the AUSA that that judge actually uh, said to him that he was um, happy and impressed with the work we did and how we didn't uh, push to renew it because uh, there was no reason to do so. So um, was that, I'm not saying everybody in the FBI. Yeah. Is that is that a failure of the wire or, you know, what, how do you how do you attribute that sort of 75 page affidavit resulting in a non-renewal? Um, I attribute it as uh, 
the the you have to discover the facts. The facts will lead you to the truth. And in law enforcement, um, your goal is not renewing a Title III, is not renewing a FISA, is not putting someone in handcuffs, is not saying, oh, look, because um, the FBI calls a Title III or a FISA um, a uh, sophisticated technique. It's one of the things in IPM that the SAC will get his bonus for. But a, a true investigator doesn't care about that. All they care about is getting as close to the truth as they can. So uh, I'm, I, I know that people considered this case a failure because it didn't end up in, a, in an arrest. Now, they still got their disruption out of it, which is the one they care about on CTD. Um, CTD but, is the counterterrorism division. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was like, who cares? Who who cares if we don't renew the 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 wiretap? There's nothing. There's no reason to renew it. Who cares that I wrote 75 pages of an affidavit? That's what the investigation needed at the time, and now we know more. And it looks like we know that the person that we thought was involved is actually just friends with this other subject who's incarcerated, and there probably isn't any real plot going on here. Well, and honestly, so we got that wiretap. It was around this year. It was around this time of year. Um, cause I think it was pretty much the whole month of June. And so the rest of that summer, it was like, okay, there's something more going on here. And that's when <clears throat> the investigation really switched into being like, you know what, the CHS is probably the one playing, uh, both sides. And, and, and that's really what it kind of came down to at the end. And then he tried getting other inmates involved and, uh, one of them was getting, uh, released, um, like it was like October it was like September or October. I go up to the prison and I, I went full FBI, which I never went full FBI. Those, I worked real close with these two guys up there uh, who were like the investigators of the prison. And uh, I love those guys, man. And they're great. Uh, one of them's retired now. I, I was able to go to his retirement, um, which was cool. Um, but I learned a lot from them. And um, so I go up there, though. It was one of the last times I went up to the prison. I go up there full FBI wearing a suit. You know, I never wear a suit unless I'm going to court or in front of a judge and or, or I guess in front of Congress now. Too. Of Congress. But, <laughs> there's, there's some famous video of you now in front of a judge or, or in front of Congress wearing a suit. Yeah. You know, speaking of that suit, uh, my daughter, Iris, she's uh, she'll be six on July 5th. Uh, I, I brought a couple ties and a couple shirts uh, on that trip. And uh, the, I think it was the night before she's I was like, hey, which tie, you know, and uh, she's she picked my tie out. She's like, Daddy, wear this one. I, I like that one the most. I'm like, all right, I'll wear that one. That was an interesting um, tie. Uh, when I saw it, I thought that's a little interesting. It's a it's kind of a different look for a guy doing what you're doing, especially a guy your size. Uh, and for folks, yeah. if you haven't seen uh, if you haven't seen the video of it, you know, Garrett's six two and two seventy five. He's a he's a uh, a very large individual, especially uh, up against our buddy Steve Friend, who's five seven, five eight. <laughs> And uh, in the in the 150 pound range, it's a marked difference when somebody has 125 pounds on you, and uh, and the better part of you know three quarters of a foot kind of deal. Uh, so, so you had your daughter pick your tie. That's charming. I love it. Your uh, yeah. A lot of this is is going to the fact that your FBI experience was sought. It was not based on trying to get convictions you weren't interested in statistics i think it's one of the arguments you made in front of congress unless uh unless i misunderstood it no no you're right and um it's uh you know i, I ran up into this as a as a cop as well um these institutions they care about those stats man they care big time and it's like that's that shouldn't matter so much um is the job getting accomplished is our criminals 
being arrested for committing crimes, uh, not for committing thought crimes, but actual crimes. Um, and that, that stat piece, it's a, it's a slippery slope because instead of doing law enforcement work because the, the work needs to be done for America, whether you're a cop or an FBI agent or a DE agent or whatever, there's a lot of law enforcement work to go around. But instead, it becomes this more justifying existence is because I got to get those stats. I got to claim them on, um, you know, my documents or whatever. And someone told me early on, uh, a stat a day keeps the ASAC away. And I thought, that's a shame that that's the case. Um, but I always was studious whenever I would submit anything, because then I that person also told me, try to claim a stat on every single document you submit, because then then you'll be fine and nobody will ever be... No, nobody will ever be questioning your work. Can you help people and, understand what that means specifically? I mean, sure. So analogies every and... time. Yeah. Every time you write um, a 302 or an EC, or even if you submit uh, something that you scanned in, in the FBI's uh, system, the software system that they use, uh, where, which houses like all of our or all the FBI's digital files, um, as you click through the workflow, there is a, is a portion that is titled accomplishments. You click into accomplishments and there um, is a very wide ranging list of things that you can attribute as an accomplishment uh, or a stat. And so, you know, and it ranges from like uh, open source information and then you can, you know, take it with that and then you get a stat. What's and, an example of open source um, information? You know, if I, let me think of one. So uh, like like this this prison case I'm telling you about, um, the main subject, you could, there's a lot of open source information because he had been incarcerated already uh, for for a, a crime that he tried to commit against, or actually a crime that, well, this case is closed, so I can talk about it, right? <laughs> I think so. This is, a, you're talking about uh, things that are openly available on the internet. Uh, open source research is going to be things that are publicly available without any special permissions, non-law enforcement sensitive stuff, newspaper, yep. newspaper yep. article, jail record, right. something like that. Yep. And that's exactly the type of stuff we would pull and upload to the file um, in that case. So, and I've done that in other cases too, sure. where it's something I found open source, you know, just, just using the Google machine or whatever, like searching, not necessarily a case subject, but maybe a group name or an ideology or whatever. And it's like, oh, this is actually applicable and would help anybody who's viewing the case. I'm going to put it in, you know, stuff like that. This is just for the sake of completeness then. Yeah. Okay. So you're claiming stats on all of your stuff. Um, and you had somebody advise you that that was the way to do it. Did you, yep. did you lose any pay? Did you lose any prestige by not renewing that title three when you guys had it? No. Um, and looking back on it now, uh, so prior to getting the title three, um, we, we were always having these conference calls about this case. And it's like, you know, if you would just let me go to work, like to actually work on this case, and instead of doing these conference calls every other day, sometimes it was every day and up to like a hundred people on these Kyle, because it was made into one of these top, it was like a top three domestic terrorism case in the whole bureau. And so everybody wanted to jump in and, Knowing what I know now and looking back on it, and it's like, oh, all those people wanted to be on those calls. So then on their 954, which for people who don't know what that is, it's essentially the internal resume in the FBI. And you need to submit your 954. It's a FD-954 is the complete title, federal uh, form federal 954. Document. 
and uh, it's uh, yeah, federal document. And um, they so then they can say, oh, I worked on this abortion extremism case, and it's like, well, did you? I mean, you, you didn't really sat on some of the phone calls, but now you right. can write to it. Uh, so good for you. Um, but before we get that Title III, uh, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm brand new. This is like first couple months um, of my career. And we had a conference call. And then my case agent, who was a TFO, uh, who had been a, an FBI TFO for like seven years, um, we had like a, more of a uh, just a meeting with our boss. And we're talking about the Title III. And she's like, you guys, I need this Title III. I need you guys to get this Title III. And I was I was like, okay, yeah, like that, that's what I've been working on. I've been, I've been trying to work on this affidavit. And I'm thinking in my head, like, I can go work on it and finish it, like, right now. Like, I, that's what I've been doing. And so then we, then we walk out of her office. And then I'm thinking, like, man, that was kind of a weird way to say that. And I was like, hey, Chad, um... What do, what what do you uh, what did she mean by that? And he just starts laughing, and he's like, uh, "You've not been in the FBI long enough, so um, you I know you were a cop, but you got a lot to learn." And I'm like, "Okay, can we go in the conference room real quick?" And he's like, "Sure." So we go in the conference room, and I'm like, "Seriously, dude, what what did she mean by that?" And and he he's the first one who told me. Uh, I don't know if he said IPM, but he's the first one who who said, "Dude." That's a sophisticated technique. They got to get the the field office has to get so many every year, uh, so that so the SAC can get uh, his gold check mark, so he can get his bonus at the end of the year. And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And he's like laughing again, and he's like, "Dude, it's all about uh, getting getting your check marks gold uh, because then the SAC gets a monetary bonus." And I was like, "What? In law enforcement, they people are getting bonuses for." for work that is done throughout the year. And he's like, yeah, he's like every, at the end of every fiscal year, they come out with new goals for the following year. And if the field office doesn't meet those goals, the SAC's bonus isn't as good. So I was like, this is the FBI, like mind blown stuff to me, because I'm thinking as a cop, if I got paid extra for every arrest I made, that would be, I mean, that's like, like, that's so Orwellian, it's hard to even wrap my brain around. But that is exactly what is happening in the FBI. When what, What's the driving force for an SAC then? Is to get all those gold check marks so they can get that bonus. And it's like, that's about as Orwellian as anything in America has ever been, as far as I'm concerned. How did that affect the way that you looked at what they were asking to do? Um, it made me very wary, uh, very cautious about why they were asking me to do things. But, uh, you know, a, a former FTO of mine texted me the other night and uh, she said like something like, hey, it looks like you've been real busy lately. And, um, you know, ever since you ever since you got hired on here, you've been my people because you've always just done what you thought was right. And I texted back to her that um, doing the right thing certainly makes the decision making process easy because it basically takes the decision making process away. So it's it's very simple. It's just like, yeah, just do the right thing. Now, I never in a million years would have thought that doing the right thing, which includes exposing uh, the truth about the evil things that the FBI is doing, uh, that's the right thing to do. Never would I have thought that it would you know, end with us being in a situation like this, but here we are. Here we are indeed. Let me, um, 
Let me kind of drill down on something. You mentioned the SAC is getting bonuses, the IPM, which is the, uh, what is IPM? Integrated Program Management. This is a, a sort of a uh, consultant group came in and, and gave an opportunity for the FBI to self-measure, to self-assess, and to be able to move forward with, um, you know, concrete metrics, concrete numbers to say whether or not they were performing. And of course, you know, it's a, it's a government bureaucracy. So they're, they're immediately perverted into something that they shouldn't have been. And people are perversely incentivized, as you said, to, to, uh, to gain the, the gold check mark. What level, uh, your understanding, what level of people within the bureau are getting bonuses? Because it's obvious you didn't get a bonus. That wasn't on the table no. for you. Correct. Um, so I think it's all SES, so senior executive staff. I think they are all the ones who are um, capable of, of getting that bonus. Now, I don't know that for sure. I'm, sh I'm certain uh, we, can we can find out. I know for a fact that it's, it's any division head is eligible to get that bonus. Uh, but I believe it's any SES or, you know, they might have a different metric if they're, I don't know, the AD and CI or or whatever, you know, whatever they might be doing. Um, they might have different metrics than an SAC would have. Um, but my my understanding is that it's all SESers, but I could be wrong about that. And these are the most senior people off the GS scale then? Correct. Right. So, so not, not, as you, not as line you know, agents, not supervisors, not even second line supervisors. Right. Right. So that's why uh, I think from my perspective, at least that's why it's um, extra frightening because it all rolls downhill. The highest ranking person in your field office gets up to, um, I believe the math is $42,000 a year. If they get everything gold is, is roughly, that's what their bonus would be because um, I would have to check my notes, but it's it's the, the, the mathematical equation is based off of their salary. And the, the so the more gold check marks you get, the higher that salary or the higher that bonus is. And then uh, recently I also learned that someone who worked in that department who would who would write those checks, so this is like more like an admin role, said that they had never seen a check lower than thirty thousand dollars for the for those bonuses so that's far more than the fbi has paid me in the last nine months but uh that's what these people are getting as a bonus for simply manipulating the numbers to get those gold check marks touche indeed um one of the the quotes that jim jordan is is very happy to say on fox news to bandy about is something that came directly out of your whistleblower testimony do you mind kind of i think it ties into what you're talking about here. Would you kind of share with folks what that is and what it means? Right. So, yeah, he, he loves to talk about um, the uh, the how the FBI is rotted at its core. And one of my protected disclosures, uh, that's what I ended that uh, transmission with, was that the FBI is rotted at its core. And I think some people might take that and say, oh, this guy just hates the FBI and he thinks everybody's a bad apple. That's not true. Um, because I know a lot of a lot of people in the FBI still, and a number of them, especially since uh, they saw my mug on C-SPAN or whatever, they uh, they've been reaching out, which is which is good. Uh, and hopefully they're watching and listening right now because I would urge them do the right thing. Uh, you see, I'm certain you see some of the same type of things we're talking about. Get in touch with us. Get in touch with your congressperson. Get in touch with a group like Empower Oversight or, or something like that to or be put in the in contact with the right people so uh, we can continue to show 
uh, how far off the rails the FBI has become. But um, yeah, it's uh, that rotted at its core. It's not it's not the line agents and employees. It's it's that SES level, especially from from my view. Uh, it's that SES level, especially, and then I would say. Uh, pretty much the rest of headquarters as well, because the type of person that is attracted to those positions is typically someone of uh, a morally bankrupt character. Not everybody, uh, but I think a lot of them are, because the ones who are on that track to promote and to go to headquarters for their 18-month TDY and all of these things to check all the right boxes so they can promote, typically speaking, those are the type of people who should never be promoted, but those are the type of people the FBI promotes because those are the type of people who seek to be promoted. And on top of that, those are the type of people who know about IPM, who know about this institutional rot even better than we do because they've been living it for the last decade plus or however long they've been at it to, to, to keep climbing that ladder. Certainly. Um, there's, there's kind of a, maybe some common wisdom that would say that you can tell a lot about an organization by the way they treat their people. What's been the experience that you have? What do you think that uh, the way that the FBI treats their people says about the FBI as an organization at this point? I think it says that um, the FBI is completely off the rails because when when people are afraid, so let's let's pitch it like this. I said it in my testimony. The FBI is the most powerful law enforcement agency in the world, in the entire world. On top of that, they now have a gross amount of domestic intelligence spying, essentially spying capabilities. So you have the most powerful law enforcement agency in the world. Now a huge aspect of their existence is gathering intelligence domestically. On top of that, all the, not all, the vast majority of employees are afraid to come forward and speak the truth because they know that they're going to get crushed, which is why I said that at the end of my testimony, because it's true. Does that include uh, former employees? I would say yes, it, it absolutely does. Former employees, because think of the whistleblower um, statute statutes. A former employee can also come forward and be protected, but even those people are afraid to come forward because they're afraid the FBI is going to somehow mess with their pension or somehow crush them. How do I know this? Because I've talked to some of these retired uh, employees and they say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about coming forward. I do have information that I think people should know about, but, you know, I kind of need my pension. And it's like, I get that to a degree. Uh, I needed my salary. Um, but at what cost? At what cost? All right, let's dig into whistleblowing because I think that's where we're at right now. There's a very specific statute. This is uh, 5 U.S.C. 2303 that defines the protected disclosures that the FBI can engage in. What what are the specific protected disclosures that you can talk about? I know some of them are, are off limits because of what your attorneys have asked you to keep confidential, so we'll do that. But what can we talk about that's in the public sphere that you have made uh, allegations and then how were those received? Uh, so the ones we can talk about, we touched on IPM a little bit and stat padding. Um, I feel like those kind of go hand in hand. Um, so what was the concrete see. allegation that you made about that? I, just so we can get very, very, very fine point okay. on that. Yeah. So, uh, a different case I had was uh, a militia violent extremism case. And in actuality, it was one case because 
it was like one group. Um, but as the investigation went on, uh, there ended up being four total cases because there were four subjects. And even as these cases are getting opened, I'm like, why are we opening uh, all these cases? Like, this is one case. And like, it's even getting confusing for me because I'm putting documents, serializing them to this case. And then I got to a point where I'm like, you know what? Every single document I write about this case, I'm just going to serialize to all four because it's one case. And um, I ended up whistleblowing that one because uh, I think it's the FBI is, is hiding the ball on how many cases they actually have. And, you know, this got leaked. I think part of this got leaked in February. Maybe it was even, um, I don't know. I think part of it got leaked in February and they, uh, the FBI came out and said something like, uh, the, the notion that we manipulate statistics is categorically false. Okay. That you can say that you can say that if you want, as an institution, that can be your stance. However, is it the truth? Um, you know, as a whistleblower, you all you have to have is a reasonable belief that something is happening. I'm working on these cases, paying attention to current events, and the FBI's in the news of, that about this type of thing. And I'm like, this is this is true. This is one case. They have me having four cases, and then they're saying it's not true. It's not true that we pad stats. It's not true that we open up cases when we don't need to. Uh, not from my view, not based on my own personal experience, which is why I took that information to Congress, because then the FBI can say, and okay, now you got to multiply this. Look, I'm I was just one agent in Wichita. So I have four cases on this militia and multiply that across the, the entire country. You know, I don't know how many militia violent extremism cases they had, but my question is how many of them are, are legitimate? How many of them should be uh, and fold it into one case. But like my example, I had four and it really should have only been one. So that's a 400% sort of fluff job on this thing. They're, they're puffing up these, these numbers by some percentage in your view. And that's a concrete allegation. What are some of the other allegations you made? Um, let me think of, uh, another one. I should have like, these should be like fresh to my mind, but I have to filter what I can talk about versus what I can't. So I just lean on the hearing. So one of the things Congressman Jordan said was um, about the school board threat tag. And he brought that up when he said, the FBI had you right where they want, something like this, you know, had you where, where they wanted you, you're in the middle of this transfer. And they thought if we can get this guy, if we can get Garrett O'Boyle, then it'll send a message to everybody else because uh, I took information about the school board threat tag to them. So. As you know, as you've talked about before, the school board threat tag is uh, is EDU officials is what the is what the threat tag was, and uh, that first was made public, I think, in October of 2021. Is that right? That's uh, I think they came forward with it. I brought it to them in October, but yeah, I think they went forward in November. November, okay. So then that's that's an issue um, going forward from November 21 until. I mean, even now, I, I'd say it's still it's still a topic that Congress is is interested in and talking about. Right, hasn't, and, been, um, hasn't been rescinded that we've been told. Right, right. So, so that's that school board threat tag comes out, and then um, uh, the FBI is essentially like they're, like they're doing again, like they always do. They're stonewalling Congress and not letting them 
do the oversight that is their mandate by law to do. Congress is mandated by law to have oversight over the FBI. The FBI is not allowing that oversight to take place. Uh, they were they they would not give Congress the information about the school board threat tag that uh, Congress had asked for. Um, and just like they're doing right now with the the uh, the source reporting about the Hunter Biden laptop, they're not allowing Congress to have that either. And it's like, when when is this nation going to realize that this is a pattern and this is indicative of uh, an agency that has gone completely off the rails? Um, but but what, what is anybody going to do? And the FBI knows that they're the ones with the guns. Where do they get? So if if Congress comes to them and says, "Hey, we have oversight over you," the FBI basically bites their thumb at them. If if you're familiar with Romeo and Juliet, and um, you know, <laughs> they do they do indeed. As long as the law is in their favor, they can bite their thumb in their general direction, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so the the allegation that I brought was about uh, the fact that this the attorney general sort of uh, implied that he would not be or stated explicitly under oath that he would not be engaging in using counterterrorism resources against parents. And so that went public, like you said, November of 2021. Uh, sometime a couple months after that, you brought additional information along those lines. Can you tell people kind of what that what did that look like and maybe what motivated you to do that? Yeah. Um, so I actually don't know how much of it I can talk about, but I'll say this. I, so Jim I brought... jo- well, let me just let me broach this very easily. So Jim Jordan's office has talked about knowing that there were as many as two dozen parents that were actually being investigated concretely. So they brought that forward. Um, yep. And as I understand it, that's something that you were able to substantiate on their behalf. Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, you know, that's I, I, br- I brought that forward because again, with the whistleblower laws, if you have a reasonable belief that any federal agency that you work for, or uh, even an applicant can be a whistleblower. So if you have a reasonable belief that there's wrongdoing going on, and that includes violation of law, policy, or regulation, uh, it includes an abuse of authority, uh, and it it includes gross mismanagement. And there are two other uh, categories. They're called the five major categories uh, for whistleblower activity. And uh, I would say those three that I just named um, are the reasons why I brought that forward. Are, are really the reasons why I I brought all my protected disclosures, disclosures forward, because I have a reasonable belief that the FBI is violating law, rule, or policy. They're abusing their authority, and they're engaged in gross mismanagement. And what I think is indicative of that <clears throat> Is like I said, Congress says to the FBI, hey, we know you have this threat tag, so give us more information about that threat tag. And the FBI says, no, uh, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do what you want us to do. And so right there, I say that substantiates a reasonable belief of wrongdoing. So that's why I ended up substantiating um, those uh, two dozen or so cases uh, for Congress because uh, as an FBI employee, I know that by law, Congress has oversight over the FBI. And then the agency I work for isn't allowing Congress to have that oversight. So again, you just have to lean into the right thing and do what's right. And I believe that that was the right thing to do. Absolutely. Uh, very straightforward when it comes to that sort of thing. And you were treated very fairly, I imagine, because the FBI loves to do the right thing. Mm. Not so much. Not so <laughs> Look much. at me now. Tell, tell people about um, sort of what the the pattern looked like. I think they heard it in your testimony, but there's that was a long uh, testimony. So there were, you know, three plus hours. Some people didn't hear it all. Uh, maybe tell people the, the pattern of events from the time that you started bringing things forward and then what the result was on you and your family. <laughs> 
Right. So really it was, uh, to me, it was out of left field. I was shocked because, um, when I started whistleblowing, I had recently just taken the annual whistleblower training. So it was ruminating in my head. It was very fresh. Uh, I never take notes on those virtual Academy trainings. When I did that whistleblower one, I was taking notes and I, I made a, a, a word document with the primary points of, uh, whistleblower protection and, and activity and things of that nature. Uh, so I, um, I, I had that fresh in my mind and kind of thought about it and prayed about it for a while. And, uh, uh, basically once I started whistleblowing, I thought I'm going to Congress as provided for by law. Uh, so I'm good. I'm going to be good to go because I'm doing what is mandated by law to be done. And so, I, yeah, I whistleblow and, uh, you know, a handful of months uh, go by. I end up trying out for that new unit in Quantico, in the Quantico area, and I get selected for that unit. And uh, I accept those orders. I was actually in Quantico when I got the orders because I was there for SWAT Basic. And um, so this is like last June I, I was there. And uh, I, I accept those orders, start looking for a house and all this stuff. Heidi was pregnant with Lucy at the time. We knew she was due around September 10th or so. Uh, Lucy ended up being born on September 8th. Um, the new unit um, allows me to, to shift to the right. So they said, hey, you can have 30 more days to report. And uh, in the meantime, I'm trying to wrap up things in Wichita. And I, am, uh, I had to head back for training uh, for 10 days back to Virginia right near the end of the pregnancy. It was like the end of August and beginning of September. I think the last day I was there was like September 1st. And um, so I do that training. We sell our house and end up living in an Airbnb uh, until Lucy was born, which even that, you know, like we knew. We were like, hey, this this is a sacrifice, but we're moving to Virginia. So yeah, it's going to be kind of crazy having a new baby, having all of our stuff packed and shipped and selling our house and uh, living in an Airbnb for a couple weeks and then traveling to Wisconsin to visit before heading to Virginia to close on the house. Like we knew it was going to be a lot. Uh, and, and, and we went into that, you know, eyes wide open, but thinking, uh, at the end of the day, like it's worth it. Um, you know, stepping forward in, into my career and, and making a move and a change like we thought was good. Um, another part of our faith, uh, has led us in, in this way is that, you got to take the opportunities that are presented to you and uh, God will open and close doors for you as you go. And in this case, it ended up being a, a very vivid uh, door slamming in our face that we thought was wide open. But, uh, uh, you know, that changed right at the end. So um, we sell our house in August and we're in this Airbnb for a couple weeks. And uh, Lucy ends up, uh, we end up having Lucy on September 8th and uh, after a few more days, Heidi's, you know, trying to recover, but we traveled to Wisconsin. We thought we were going to be here just a couple weeks to visit. And um, after about a week, uh, I coordinated with the new unit um, to head down to Virginia to report. And my plan was to head down and report and work for a week, kind of kind of figure out the, the new position and, you know, get checked in and all that stuff that you have to do. And so I talked to my, my it, the, uh, the SSA that was going to be over me. Um, at the new place, I talked to him the week before. I talked to him on a Wednesday and a Friday, and he on the Friday he's like, "Okay, so you're you're still coming down?" And I'm like, "I was like, yep, I'm coming. Uh, I'll be there. I'll be reporting on Monday." And so looking back now, it's like, oh, it's clear 
it is clear that he knew what was going to happen. This is and I have sense. Say again. Is this Grado? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so he knew what was coming. He knew what was going to happen. He decided to do the wrong thing because it would have been very simple for them to just say, hey, we need you to go uh, actually to the Milwaukee field office on Monday. Don't don't come and report. We, we just need you to go there for some virtual academy or we got to do something digitally. But no, instead, they let me drive all the way to Virginia on my own dime. From Wisconsin. Because I never got. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And so I head down there and, um, you know, I drove down on a Sunday. I check into my hotel. I, I report Monday morning. I think I'm going to get my security in briefing. Uh, but no, I get my security out briefing and uh, they, you know, seize my gun and creds and badge and sacks badge and, you know, what read me the riot act, give me a bunch of forms. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the Reader's Digest version of it. But um, I get walked out. And then, um, you know, I, I start making phone calls. I, you were one of the first people I called, um, uh, point of contact at, in Congress, talk to them, uh, then start trying to get in touch with some attorneys. Uh, thankfully, that day, actually, I was able to meet with uh, Jason Foster from Empower Oversight, uh, and we were able to meet in person, which was, which was great. Um, and he heard my whole story, heard me out. Um, talk to him about everything. And so he, he agreed to take me on under Empower and uh, cover initially 75% of my legal bills. Uh, and then, you know, fast forward a little bit, I end up going with, with a different attorney. And, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, I think Empower is doing great work. Um, and that if if other whistleblowers come forward, I would say that that should be one of their first calls um, is to to Empower because they really know their stuff when it comes to whistleblowing, especially now that they have brought Tristan Levitt on, who also testified last Thursday. Right. Uh, that guy, dude, that guy, he he has got it dialed in when it comes to the whistleblower stuff. And um, and yeah, so I, I meet I meet with Jason and 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 the ball kind of gets rolling from there. But uh, this is September 26th that this happens. So yeah, that was the question I, I was going to ask you, and and I'm going to butt in just a little bit. They gave you. You didn't just sell your house because it was time to sell your house. You sold your house because you're under orders to sell your house, correct? Correct. Sim yeah, so similar to like a we, PCS move in the military. Exactly. So we uh, accepted those orders in good faith. Like, sure. We thought, here we go. Like, we're accepting these orders. I have a new job in the FBI now, and we're going to be moving. And uh, yeah, because I, I have learned uh, since uh, a little bit more of this backstory and. So I know that executive management in Kansas City knew they knew what was that what was coming and they were told uh, not to say anything to me. And um, since I don't have access to FBI policy anymore, I don't know for certain, uh, but I do believe that that is a violation of policy right there, because um, my understanding is that an employee who's under investigation is not uh, to be allowed to transfer. Uh, but he was ordered, or not he, I guess my SAC and the other executive management in Kansas City were ordered to allow me to transfer, which to me, that tells me now that the FBI did this on purpose, just like Congressman Jordan said, if we can get this guy. This is, yeah, this is a trap that you're you're laying out right now. Um, so I'm yep. going to just, I'm going to rehash that if you don't mind, I'm going to restate it that essentially that you were under investigation that they allowed you to sell your home under orders. So it's not like you chose it. They, you had to sell your home because you accepted the orders in good faith. And then they had you move 
And while they had access to your household goods and while they had you in between homes with a baby that was two weeks old, then they came in and revoked your badge, your gun, your authorities, et cetera. Will you uh, get into that meeting just a little bit, if you would? This was with the security division, as I understand it. Tell me uh, maybe a little bit about what they alleged that you had done. And then also, if you don't mind, um, what what that moment was like when you realized that you were dealing with a very different scenario. You came in there to be accepted to a new unit, to start a new life, and then instead, you're, you're definitely getting a new life, but not the one that you planned on. Yeah, that's for sure. So their primary allegation, oh, you know what, let me preface it this way too, um, because as Stacy Plaskett tried to say at the hearing that we are essentially spies and we did something wrong and we shouldn't have access to classified material, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's the FBI's argument too, is that we shouldn't have access to classified material. Even though in their own allegation against me, it has nothing to do with anything classified. So it's like, well, what is that? I, I don't think you guys know what you're doing. Um, but uh, also this, because uh, I found out once they gave me this paperwork that the allegation against me came in August. I still was allowed to have access to classified information that whole time. And at that training that I went to for the new position, we had classified briefings as part of that training. So if I'm such a threat to security, why do they continue to allow me to have access to classified information when they knew that they were going to be suspending my clearance? But they didn't do it. They, 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 they uh, set the trap and waited to spring it until it was just right. So I think it shows vindictiveness and it, it also shows uh, hypocrisy because if they truly think that I'm a threat to national security, why did they wait to suspend that clearance? But instead they let me participate in classified briefings. It doesn't add up, it doesn't make any sense. But we'll fast forward back to September 26th. And uh, yeah, they, the, the primary allegation was that I was making unprotected disclosures to media and they brought up a couple um, a couple news uh, sources and articles that they were essentially trying to say that I had leaked to. And so at that point, I'm like, well, great. I'm being accused of something I didn't do. So uh, I told them that I had been whistleblowing to Congress because I thought, well, the the, the jig is up and I, I might as well just tell them uh, because maybe, maybe they'll say, oh, we got to look into that first. But instead they said, oh, this is separate. Even though the things that they alleged I, that I leaked to the media, which I didn't, those things that they allege were things I made protected disclosures about. When did, you first, yeah, when did you first go to Congress? I'm sorry, when did you first go to the media? When, when was your first media contact? Um, When my name was leaked to CNN. <laughs> which would have been when? February. That's the first time people saw this, my name because this February. it was leaked. This February, February of 2023. And so uh, the first time, I guess, technically that I was in the media was when that hearing took place. And then my first time speaking uh, publicly was Jesse Waters that night. And so your first media yeah. contact was maybe you were you were exposed six months after you were removed. But your first media contact was just 10 days ago. Right. 12 days ago. Yeah. So. Okay. And, and you've been working with Congress a little bit. Have you seen things that people have brought to Congress been exposed by members of Congress to the media? Is that a thing that, that you're yes. familiar with? It happens all the time. Would I you, mean, would you expect uh, that every an FBI time, investigator would know that sort of thing? You would imagine. 
And, and this, this again is why I, I, I don't think I'll ever be swayed from the position that this was done intentionally and maliciously because anybody who knows anything about investigating uh, knows that when Congress receives information from whistleblowers, sometimes that information is made public. And oftentimes it is. And there are things, there are even other things that the FBI didn't bring up that are also public that I whistle blew about, but Congress didn't release my name, but they released the information. So there's even more out there. And it's like, that's that's Congress's purview. That's part of their oversight. If they wanna release that information, they can. They never released my name. Now, not until February when Democrat staff attorneys le leaked it. Uh, this, this is after Congress, you uh, did a, a deposition with them, you're saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. But to be fair, there are but things yeah. that are in the public sphere right now that are listed as one of the two dozen whistleblowers that Jim Jordan likes to talk about, that you have brought those allegations to them and they have not been attributed to your name. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And, so, and you, and you didn't, um, you didn't leave those to the media either is what you're saying. Correct. Yeah, I didn't. Okay. Yeah. And I, I do wonder, like, uh, I, I do wonder what they're thinking right now especially now that I am talking to the media because uh, I didn't for so long. And, you know, I even asked, once I got suspended, I even asked for their permission to go to the media. Um, you know, I, it's something I, I wish I would have done like right away. It didn't happen till mid-November. Um, but as you know, the move and getting my belongings and having a new baby and this, uh, this really uh, catastrophe that has happened to my life and my family, um, I guess it wasn't as pressing, but it didn't matter anyways, because I requested this permission from the FBI to speak publicly and sent them a press release about the things I wanted to talk about and wrote an email and then didn't hear anything for months and months and months and months. And then guess when I first heard back from them in early May, they, they emailed me back and said, oh, you can speak publicly now. Well, we reviewed it and um, they cautioned me not to discuss my whistleblower um, activities because they claim that they won't be protected then. And it's like, well, I made the protect, protected disclosures long ago and you've suspended me since then. So the ones that are in public, uh, I'll talk about because Democrats leaked some of some of the protected disclosures I made as well when they, when they leaked my name. But um, yeah, it took them five months to approve me to go public. And then they also said, oh yeah, we're approving you, but Every time you do an interview, you have to get our permission. And it's like, that's unreasonable. That's a completely unreasonable thing for them to do because it took you five months to approve it in the first place. And and what, I'm gonna go back and get your permission for me to exercise my First Amendment right um, to speak uh, each time? I, I don't think so. And, I, and if they wanna press me on that and say, well, now you violated this policy, okay, go ahead. Thankfully, I have really good attorneys and um, they, they are, uh, st staunch conservative, uh, staunch um, defenders of the Constitution, and um, I mean Jesse Benall is a constitutional attorney. His con constitutional law is his thing. So if they want to try and say, "Oh, you can't exercise your First Amendment right because you didn't get our permission," well, go ahead and 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 accuse me of violating that policy. Then you've been accused of perjury now uh, by some disreputable news organizations. They have come out and stated that the things you said under your deposition, under sworn testimony, were contrary to the things that you said in front of Congress, as I understood it, although I read it and I couldn't actually piece that together. 
Can you maybe discuss what that allegation looks like, the, the actual, you know, whether or not it has any water, and then maybe what it feels like to be accused of something like that in New York Times, Washington Post, um, left-wing news outlets? Yeah, so it's, um, it's especially alarming because it's coming from Representative Goldman again. And is it really? Um, yes. Yeah, so he, he's the one who's claiming that uh, Jim Jordan and the committee need to investigate me for perjury. And his reasoning, and this is this is where politicians like this are, are very slimy because he knows better. He was a federal prosecutor, so he certainly knows what perjury is and isn't. Mm -hmm. So in my deposition, I was asked about Cash Patel and they said, have you ever met him? And I said, no. And they said, is he giving you money? And I said, uh, his foundation is giving me money or has has given me money uh, at Christmas time. And then they said, uh, who's paying your legal bills? And I said, the, the cash foundation, or I said, I think the cash, I don't know for sure. I haven't been able to go back. They, they haven't provided me my transcript. So I, I don't know my precise words, but at the time I believed that the cash foundation was paying my legal bills. Yes. I think that's a reason. I think that's a reasonable belief. No, nope, Nobody ever told me um, that the cash foundation was paying my legal bills, but I assumed they were because I thought, uh, Jesse and his team, who have put in a considerable amount of hours uh, with me, um, somebody's got to pay them. That's what I. That's what I assumed. Why did you assume the Cash Foundation would be the ones paying? Um, because uh, the Cash Fund, Cash is who put me in touch with the Banal Law Group. Got it. So I thought. I thought like, oh, they're probably paying my legal bills. You know? And and it, you it were seemed... and you weren't seeing a bill. Correct. Correct. Okay. So that was and a reasonable, so, we'll say a reasonable assumption. Was that corrected on the record then at that time? It was corrected on the record. So at the end of my deposition, on the record, Jesse Benal, my attorney who represented me there, he said, I need to, to make one more comment on the record. Uh, we don't usually talk about this kind of thing, but it needs to be corrected. Um, Mr. O'Boyle is not having his legal bills uh, paid for by the Cash Foundation because me and my law firm are doing it pro bono. And so at that point, this is in February now, I learned that my legal bills were being provided to me pro bono, which I'm very grateful for. I will be um, indebted to Jesse and his team uh, for the rest of my life uh, for, for what, they've, what they're doing for me. I would never be able to afford, Kyle, you know, we're suspended without pay. I would never be able, I would never be able to afford an attorney, much less really good uh, DC-based attorneys like I have. Yeah, someone and, who represents uh, they've, the, they've the former president. Three, sorry, what'd you say? I said like someone who, de who represents a former president of this country and uh, General Michael Flynn and so on, which is what Benal's group does. Right. It's really, um, this is another aspect of it that has been very humbling because, you know, I, I, I'm a pretty simple dude. Like, I, you know, I come from Milwaukee, blue collar family. Like, I, I just wanted to be a cop. And then... And then I somehow became an FBI agent. And I thought, this is really cool, man. I, I've, I've, I've made it to the top of Mount Everest. And so to have somebody like him who represents people like that, it's, um, I, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that they would do, do something like that for me. And, um, yeah, it, what they're doing, not even just for me, but really they're doing it for my family too. And I think they would say they're doing it because our nation needs it. And, uh, so little things like that along the way have been, um, a blessing in disguise because it's like, oh, there really are good people in America who want to uh, help it get back to its roots of freedom. And 
uh, Jesse Benal and his team are certainly among that group, and you know I'm honored to to be represented by them. But but yeah, so now we fast forward to the hearing, and they asked me if um, Cash Patel is paying my legal bills, and I said not to my knowledge because to my knowledge now since February when I first learned of it, my legal bills are being provided to me pro bono, and so now Dan Goldman comes out and says, oh we we think he might have perjured himself. He should be ashamed of himself uh, because he was a prosecutor. He knows what perjury is. He knows what it isn't. He knows that his Democrat staff attorneys leaked my testimony, and he knows on the record that I was told and they were told that my legal bills are being handled pro bono. What do you attribute that uh, that statement to? Oh, they were over the target. Uh, they they know that they know that the things we have brought forward. The things that are public and the things that aren't, they know that it's damning to the FBI. They see that the institution is rotted. And so instead of um, attacking the message because the message is spot on, they will attack us as the messenger. And, and that's fine. Go ahead. You Go ahead and attack us all you want. Uh, Delegate Plaskett was um, sort of implying that you were partisan hacks, that you guys were involved in some sort of a grift with Cash Patel about money. I want to talk about money in just a second. I want to first talk about the partisan nature of your allegations. Um, is there a political motivation for what you are saying? And if so, what is that? What is that motivation? How does it lean? No, no political motivation. This isn't. And I, I said this in my deposition, too. This isn't a partisan issue. It doesn't matter um, what type of case what type of ideology, if the FBI is doing something wrong, they're doing something wrong. And and that is the part that matters. Um, there was this, I forget the title of the article, is a Trevor Aronson wrote it, and it was about this case in Colorado where they were inf trying to infiltrate, well, they did. They infiltrated with an undercover cop, um, a, a left-leaning group. And even reading that article, it's like, this seems really bad. Like, the FBI shouldn't be doing what they're doing here, but they did it anyway. So it doesn't matter uh, what ideology? I don't care about that. Uh, it, what matters is, and you know, Director Ray likes to say, doing the right thing in the right way. Well, oftentimes the FBI isn't doing the right thing in the right way. They're they're completely botching the Constitution and the law, but they're doing it anyways because they know no one's going to really make them stop. That seems true. Um, do you have a strong political lean one way or another? Are you registered with the party? Um, I had not been registered for a long time. I registered in Kansas to uh, vote in the primary as a Republican. I'm not registered here as anything. Uh, I've voted Libertarian uh, more in the last uh, eight years probably than than any other uh, party. Do you affiliate yourself? Do you think of that as part of an identity? I see a lot of Twitter bios where people are like proud Democrat, proud Republican, whatever, GOP forever. No. Do you have one of those things? No, I, I don't. If somebody said, are you part of the GOP establishment or GOP at all? I would say no, I'm not. Would you have any problem uh, making a whistleblowing allegation against uh, the FBI infringing on leftist, um, leftist ideologically aligned groups? No, if I was assigned to some type of Antifa case or something like that, and I saw the same type of things uh, that we've talked about, like say, say I had an Antifa case where I had four subjects and I had four cases, that's just as wrong as um, a militia violent extremism case where you have four cases that should be one. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. I don't care um, what, which side of the, of the political aisle one of these groups is on. If the FBI is wrong, they're wrong, and the American people need to know about that. Let's, do, uh, let's talk money a little bit. 
the the allegation that's been thrown out there is that uh, you're receiving money, that you're a paid operative, uh, that you're operating on behalf of Donald Trump. You want to address those in any way? Is that is that accurate? It's not accurate. So here we go again with um, the lack of critical thinking, and it's like for me, it's it's so simple because it's so clear, and probably because the retaliation has been so stark, where literally. It was at Christmas time, Heidi and I were talking, what are we going to do for Christmas this year? Because we just don't have the money um, like we were used to having to provide for Christmas. And then in comes Cash Patel and his foundation, and they sent us a check just in time. And so we were able to have more or less a normal holiday season. Um, we still kept it scaled back a little bit because think of that. He sent us a $5,000 check as an FBI agent. At that time, as a GS-12, I was taking home $6,000 a month, take home. So he didn't even match what we make, what I was making in a month. But he did it anyways because he thought it was the right thing to do. And then um, I, I like to put it this way. A GS-13 step one in the Washington, D.C. area with locality pay there and LEAP pay, which for your listeners is law enforcement availability pay, it is a fixed rate set at 25% of a federal law enforcement officer's salary. So for someone living in the DC area with LEAP, which every 1811 has, it's just over $130,000 a year. And that's, I much would rather be having that salary, working in the FBI, having my job, having, um, um, like uh, stability in work, stability for my family. But instead, we get accused of, of, of accepting money on behalf of Donald Trump and Cash Patel, and that's why we whistle blew. But it couldn't be further from the truth because the whistleblower activities already took place uh, months and months and months ago. And then I get suspended in September. I never have met Cash Patel. I still haven't met him. I've talked to him on the phone a couple times. And then in November... You put me in touch with him and said, hey, I think he wants to try to help you. And so I talked to him and he says he wants to help. And as anyone who has ever had their life upended like this and their pay stripped from them and their livelihood stripped from them and are trying to figure out a way to feed their family, I think it's per uh, perfectly reasonable to accept um, a contribution, a donation from a charitable organization that wants to help you. You know, I mentioned it in my in my testimony, there uh, are a number of people who have helped me along the way. You have been one of them when you were suspended without pay. You were giving me and my family money out of your gifts and go, but nobody brings up you. On top of that, a former colleague's church uh, sent has sent us money out of their benevolent fund. And they did that because they know my story because of my former colleague. And like I said in my testimony, I would name the church to give them recognition because I like to give recognition to when it's due, but I am too concerned that the FBI would send informants there like they did in the, in the Richmond uh, diocese. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just alarming that people have, have grasped onto this idea like, Oh, they're just paid grifters. Uh, I was making $130,000 or set to make $130,000 a year. And you think I would give that up? Um, after my whistleblower activity, after I've been suspended, somehow in the hopes that someone was going to send me a $5,000 check right before Christmas time, it doesn't even make logical sense in the least.
I I like that you're you're willing to say the exact numbers. I'm I'm the same way. I know that we feel strongly about transparency. It's really important that people understand that the the lack of critical thinking you mentioned, five thousand yeah. dollars as the trade off, you know, at at Christmas post post experience post exposing, for right. for one hundred and twenty to one hundred thirty thousand dollar year salary yeah. plus benefits plus plus a retirement. Right. I mean, uh, it goes on exactly. Per, goes exactly. Oh, and I I think even the money aside, like. My anonymity, you know, like it's weird. It's did you, weird. Did you like, always aspire to be a guest on the Kyle Serafin podcast that didn't exist when you were uh, about to be a whistleblower? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, it was my crystal ball, Kyle. I knew this day would come, and I I would be able to speak freely to your viewers, um, and probably be asked about it someday by the FBI. But um, actually, on the uh, you know this person. I'm, do you mind if I if I read a text, please, real quick? Go ahead. So this is an FBI employee. I, I won't even, I won't even go any deeper than that. Um, I've never met this person in my life. They have been sending me and my family money, um, since I've been suspended, uh, every month, just about, um, sometimes more than every month, sometimes twice in a month, they would send money. And I texted them, um, the other day when things calmed down a little bit and basically just thank them for supporting me, uh, and my family from the beginning. And this was their response. It is the right thing to do, and I'm glad to do it. I just pray you get some relief here soon. I feel like the dam is building and something's going to give here soon. We're seeing little cracks. Uh, by the way, I heard you and Steve Friend on Charlie Kirk. Nice job. I love his show and organization. Hang in there. Listen to what they said in the beginning. It's the right thing to do. And that's what it boils down to. That's what all of this comes down to. I agree with you. I'd like to... Um... I'd like to play a quick video. I think you'll be able to hear it as well. I'm going to just transition over. Um, folks, for those of you who have stuck with us here, I know we've gone for uh, over an hour and a half, and and uh, I want to let Garrett have all the time that he has. And uh, as long as my bladder will allow it, we will continue to have that conversation. Uh, if you need if you need a, a moment, this will be uh, about a two-minute break here. This is another whistleblower. Uh, Garrett met him at the congressional testimony, Marcus Allen. Uh, you'll notice that he was uh, he was the only one that was not an FBI agent. You had Steve Friend as an agent. You had Garrett as a former agent. And you had Marcus, who was a uh, an SOS, which is an analytical position that works directly with special agents. And I asked him if he would record something. Since, since their testimony, since their time in front of Congress, uh, we were able to raise, with, with your generous help, our listeners and, and those who follow us on Twitter and a lot of different people that shared this uh, Give, Send, Go uh, Eric, you asked, I think somebody else did in the, in the chat, how we can support these people. There is a give, send, go set up, give, send, slash Kyle Seraph. And it's my name. It's going to come to me. Um, and I'm going to be cutting checks very shortly. I've been in contact with Marcus. He's not going to be doing any interviews. He had no interest in doing interviews. Uh, uh, Garrett has been waiting to get into the fight. We're a little bit more confrontational. I think you and I share that vein. We're ready to get out there and engage and, uh, be involved in the information war as necessary. But Marcus was not, that's not what he set out to do. And he's quietly been suffering 400 plus days with no paycheck, hoping the right thing was going to come up. He's going to talk to you a little bit about drastic decisions. The first call that I made to him, he told me he was ready to sell his house. He was about 90 days away from making the decision to put his house in the market because they couldn't afford it. But where they were going to go after that happened is, is anybody's guess. And uh, because of your generosity, folks, uh, we don't have to see that being a thing. I'm going to play this video real quick in his own words. I'll let Garrett make a comment on it in just a moment. And um, yeah, bear with me. But this is Marcus Allen. Uh, another indefinitely suspended FBI whistleblower from the Charlotte field office. 
Good day, my fellow Americans and those around the world, and thank you greatly for the outpouring of support and generosity shown to me and my family. Being in the public eye has not been anything I've ever aspired to, but here we are. This has been a trying ordeal, but with your charity and God's grace, we are persevering. Justice, fortitude, duty, long-suffering, and perseverance have been our bedfellows throughout this trial, and my family encourages everyone to make these attributes a feature of your character as well. We are going through a trial together as a people, but I know we will come out the better for it. You cannot make wine without the wine press. Memorial Day is upon us, and we should remember the sacrifice of so many for our great nation. As a Marine veteran, I'll be saying a prayer for all of our fallen this Memorial Day. Outside of prayer, the best way I know to honor them is to do my duty as a public servant for the American people, we the people, not counting the cost. In an address before the Free University Berlin on June 26, 1963, President John Kennedy stated, life is never easy. There is work to be done and obligations to be met. Obligations to truth, to justice, and to liberty. What is truth but to see things as they really are? What is justice but to give each their due? What is liberty but the freedom to do what ought to have been done in the first place? Fortunately, I'm able to meet these obligations thanks to grace and your generosity. This has been a financially debilitating episode, but the Lord provides, especially through his beloved here on earth. That is you, brothers and sisters. Again, on behalf of my family, thank you so much. Things were getting really tight and drastic decisions were around the corner, but a buffer and a blessing has been provided. May God bless you, your families, and God bless America. So that was Marcus Allen. I'm going to be sending this out in an email blast to all the folks that have donated. We had over 10,000 people uh, 10,000 people donate to the Give, Send, Go. We've cleared $500,000 since the uh, testimony that you guys gave. And I think people are feeling a very strong sense. That dam break that you mentioned earlier about wanting to come forward to do something, to get engaged, to uh, support you as you guys kind of fight the the proxy battle on their behalf. So I wanted to say thank you. If you wanted to to, to uh, address the you know the folks that are out there, we'll, we'll cut a snippet out of this and we'll share it as well in the email blast. Yeah, it's been, um, <laughs> you know, I don't care. Uh, on, I think it was Wednesday. Um, I learned we we all we learned that uh, coffee and COVID. Jeff Childers's outfit uh, was doing a multiplier on the gifts and go. And I was sitting in this room with Lucy. Uh, Heidi Heidi started working again um, during this ordeal. Just a couple days here and there. This was one of her work days, which are always kind of chaotic for me, especially uh, with Lucy, but um, she's tired. I'm trying to get her to sleep and she's crying and, and our friend Tracy Beans uh, texts me and tells me that Coffee and COVID is doing this multiplier. And uh, even before that, it was already like, wow, it's so impressive that there are so many uh, people out there who are willing to donate to someone me and Marcus and whoever else, we might be able to help with it. Um, we, they never even met us, uh, but they saw our testimony 
And I think they saw the truthfulness of of the words we spoke, the conviction we have about the things we said and the things we saw in the FBI, and that stood out to them. And I've said it a, a number of times, uh, at least to family and friends. I don't know if I've said it on any interview yet, but for the first time in a long time, like I actually have some hope, and uh, I feel almost as normal as I've felt uh, since since this whole suspension happened. And I don't think I even realized how difficult of a time um, I was going through and having, and uh, the outpouring of support is is amazing, and it's like it, it's it, it's even very overwhelming because it's like uh, I don't want to let these people down uh, who thought e- even someone who just chips in five bucks or whatever, all of that adds up. And I haven't checked the total number lately, but I know it is a lot, and I know it is way more than I ever could have imagined. It's way more than I I mean it it. it, it you know, I've been talking a lot. There, it's very rare for me to be uh, caught without words, uh, but the words simply don't um, portray the type of gratitude, the the type of humility that this outpouring of support um, means to me and my family. Um, it, it's going to be life changing for us because we're going to be able to stay in this fight for a lot longer now. Because, you know, the FBI, I don't think they're ever going to start paying me again, uh, and that's okay. Uh, that's fine, especially now, because now we have a buffer and uh, we're, we're going to be OK. And um, it, it, it's it's just a hopeful time because it's like, OK, there are thousands and thousands of Americans who saw this testimony uh, that we did and said, man, look at what happened to them just for trying to do the right thing. And um, but then on Wednesday, when that multiplier happened, it I've seen numbers ending in two so much since then. They really, they really have multiplied it. I see why they call it a multiplier. But um, I'm texting with Tracy on Wednesday, and uh, I, I said something like, "Man, I, I'm on the brink of tears." And she's, she texted me back and said, um, "Just go ahead and cry. Like, accept the blessing." And and it, it reminds me of my friend who came with me to Virginia in early November to help me move. Um, that's when I learned that my pay was being suspended, uh, I, I crunched the numbers. Um, we spent uh, like over $10,000 to just go get our own stuff. And then my pay gets suspended on top of it. And I was telling him like how grateful I was and I, I don't know if I'm ever gonna be able to pay you back. And he said, Garrett, I'm not doing this so I can get paid back. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. and." I want to bless you. Let me bless you in this way. And so um, uh, the the blessings that all the people uh, have have given to us is amazing. It's astounding. And um, it's funny how God works because uh, on this journey, on this path, uh, we've been we've been humbled and we've realized that we have been far too prideful in our in our own flesh because we thought we can take care of ourselves. Uh, we can we can do it. We don't need help. Um, but in the beginning, when my friend told me, let me bless you. And when Tracy said, accept the blessing and all these people who are giving and are blessing us. And it's like, thank you. I mean, the words, they, they don't they don't add up to. Uh, what it what it means and what it w- will mean and what it has done for for me and my family and so thank you to everyone seeing this who has 
uh, played a played a role in that, and um, it, it certainly does not go unnoticed, and it is uh, beyond anything I ever could have imagined. One of the um, one of the things that you and I have talked about offline is the difficulty that whistleblowers face. Maybe it's the betrayal that happens directly after they realize that the agency doesn't have their back. Um, and then they try to fix it on their own. And most mm -hmm. of them seem to have a psychological crack of some kind. Tell people what it means, um, if you would, what it means that you're not going and getting another job to stay in this fight. Like, I don't think people necessarily can, can grasp that, but I think you can articulate it if you would. Why, why not just go get another job? Why not just move on? Uh, for me, it's this is the only way, at least for now, because I truly believe that uh, when an agency like the FBI has gone so rogue, I, they're a rogue agency at this point, and and the the light needs to continue to be shined in their darkness. And if I can play a role in that, I will for as long as I can, because uh, it must happen. It, it must happen, otherwise. Uh, the once free America that, that we have grown to love and, and fight for uh, as adults, our, most of our adult lives, and are still uh, today, that country won't exist in 50 years if uh, it doesn't change now. And in large part, I think that starts with the FBI because of the amount of power that they have. And so if, if we can continue uh, to push forward uh, on in this way about the malfeasance happening in the FBI, and we continue to point it out, and we continue to, uh, you know, bring up clips of people like Jill Murphy testifying and and absolutely exposing that cancerous rot. We must do it. We must because it's the only way to play our little role to help get this nation back on track. Maybe help people understand too your employment status, what it means, and what has to happen in order for you to go and to go and get another job, as people are saying. Right, so I'm technically still employed by the FBI. And uh, so it's like a purgatory-like state because they say you're an employee of them, but then they tell you you can't identify as, as a special agent anymore, and they strip all your duties. And then they tell you, oh, if you wanna get another job, you have to get our permission first. And then we know from our friend, uh, Mr. Friend, that if you try to get another job, they will tell you, no, you can't. And this happened to Marcus too, I believe, that he tried to get outside employment and they told him no. And uh, so you try to get outside employment and then they tell you no. And then if you come from the agent class, like Steve and I and you, uh, then they tell you, because they told Steve this, uh, even if we were to approve that job, which we're not gonna do, but even if we were going to, since you were an agent, you can only make $7,500 a year because that's our policy that agents can only make $7,500 outside of their government salary. Yes, we know we stripped your government salary from you, but hey, that's the policy, so deal with it, or uh, you're gonna be subjected to another policy violation. And so the only way that you can continue to hold this thing and hold their feet to the fire is by basically suffering through without a paycheck. These people have made that possible. So many uh, donations have made that possible in, uh, right. in just such a big way. Um, you mentioned the coffee and COVID folks, uh, and Jeff Childers will throw a big thank you to him. The, the, the donations ending in two have totaled, uh, in excess of $150,000. Um, 
which, which is wow. going to result in 75,000. We're going to split it down the middle. You had a funny conversation with me a little bit ago, um, or someone brought it up to you, the concern, you know, what's Kyle going to do with that money? Um, and in full disclosure, I am, I'm going to be the one who is taking that transfer. It's going to come to me, uh, and I will be sending it to you guys. There are people that are concerned about that sort of thing. You want to, you want to answer yeah. that concern? I do because, uh, again, um, people don't understand and, and that's fine. I, I don't blame them for not understanding. And I blame, I don't blame them even for being skeptical because, um, you know, I, I forget the reference off the top of my head, but the Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. And uh, I think that's very clear. We all we have to do is take a look around at uh, some of the world's elites. And, and we know that that is true. Um, but what they don't get is you. They don't understand you. They don't understand what you've been through. They don't understand uh, what me and Steve and Marcus and other whistleblowers have been through. Um, and they never will. Well, hopefully they never will. I hope I hope none of hope none of them ever will experience something like this either. Um, but furthermore, because of, they lack that experience and because they lack uh, knowledge about who you are, they think, oh, he suddenly has all this money that is going to him. I mean, he doesn't actually even have to give it to them. And okay, I mean, I guess I can see where you get that concern, but my answer to them was, he's the most honorable person I've ever met. So I know he's gonna do the right thing no matter what. And um, think of that, that is people I've known in the FBI, people I've known as a cop, people I've known in the military. Uh, I've known a lot of good people across those um, those careers, and a lot of honorable people as well. Um, but none of them are like you. So thank you for being my friend. Yeah, buddy. Um, let's talk about Memorial Day. I teased it out in the beginning. You don't you say happy Memorial Day. I know some people will bristle at the idea of a happy Memorial Day. But yeah. but you don't and uh, and I don't either. Uh, and I think maybe that comes from the experience of knowing people who you know, we've lost in service to this country, something that they that they chose, something that they wouldn't necessarily want, they wouldn't wish on anybody else. Will you kind of give your perspective on Memorial Day and why yeah. it's appropriate to be happy on Memorial Day? For sure. So you might have caught this in the um, in the hearing. I could see it in some of the clips. Uh, this is a memorial uh, bracelet that I wear for a friend of mine. Um, he was a mentor, a leader, and, and a friend. And uh, he was killed in Afghanistan. What's and, his name? Um, there's... Say again. What is his name? His name is James Neal. And um, <clears throat> I'll never forget him unless I become demented like a sideshow Joe someday. But uh, he. <laughs> cheap shot. Cheap shot. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, him and another guy I served with in Afghanistan. He was I think he was like 19 when he got killed. His name was Arturo Rodriguez. And um, there are others that I know of who, uh, you know, I went to basic training with or whatever. But uh uh, Captain Neal, he's the one I knew the closest. And, uh, you know, when I first got out of the army, um, I, I think I struggled transitioning. I think that happens a lot. And, uh, I think I was going down a, a, a very negative path like many veterans do where they think, oh, no one gets me. No one gets what I've done. No one gets what I've been through. Um, and you, they kind of look in the rear view mirror and are like, oh man, what could have been, should have been with my military career or whatever. And I got to this point where, um, I forget where I first heard this. I think it might've been John Burke, um, years ago, he 
called those type of people vet flakes, like, uh, you know, like a snowflake, but a vet flake. And I was like, oh, that's a good point. And my mindset kind of started to shift um, probably maybe probably after that first year that I got out of the army is probably when it, it, it first really started because I'm like, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to live this way and be angry and bitter and just thinking about uh, the past and the things I did in the army. And so now fast forward to today and, and really the last I don't even know. Many years, um, many years now, I'm at a point where I have realized, and I, I really don't think my mind will ever be changed again on this. That today is a happy day. It is a happy Memorial Day because someone like my friend James Neal, he would want you to be happy. He would want you to to take every. I mean, it's it's sunny and nice out here today, and it's beautiful, and it's like you know what? They would. The people who died for this country, they would love to have just one more day, one more day like today. So they don't want you to be angry. They don't want you to be sad. They don't want you to be bitter. They want you to be happy. They want you to be grateful for what they gave. And I've said it this way before. Live a life worthy of his sacrifice. And I, I fail at that most of the time. You know, I, I fail far more at living a life worthy of the sacrifice of Christ. Um, but even when I think of it in human terms, like my friend James Neal, I think, am I living a life worthy of the sacrifice that he gave? And I'm sad that I fail at that often, but if, if I can keep that in the forefront of my head and remember that he would want me to be happy, I remember his smile. I, I have it in my head right now. I can see it. And I remember the type of person he was and the type of warrior he was and the type of soldier and leader that he was. And he's a, he was a father and a husband too. And he would want me to smile and be happy and be grateful that we still have an America. And you know what? He would want me to keep fighting for this country too. And so we have to. Yeah, well said. Very well said. Every day is a Memorial Day when you have a band like that, when you have people that you carry around with you. Um, I'll acknowledge Carl Ennis, who was a PJ that I trained with. He's a good man. Two combat controllers, Andy and Sean Harvell. They were brothers, also outstanding warriors. People that uh, put it all on the line for this country. And they would want you to, you know, they did it because they wanted this country to be able to have days like this where we can go out and have a barbecue with our families. That's what it's about. Um, I had to explain this to my daughter yesterday, what, why people are off, why there are flags out. And she's five. She gets it. And she was immediately able to to put it together and understand exactly what it was about. And, uh, you know, that people make sacrifices so that other people can, can carry on and have all the blessings of liberty that we believe in, that we believe that we all should have. Um sobering thought, maybe a sobering message on the way out. One of the concerns that I've had, and I think that you might share is that a lot of people in the military and in law enforcement and in federal service, and I'll put service in air quotes sometimes a little bit, they, you know, they pledge their life through the, through the oath of office, which we brought, we started this, this uh, interview with. And most of them seem to be unwilling to even be uncomfortable to lose a paycheck, to lose uh, access to their pension or their health care, let alone put their life on the line. W what does that make you tell, you know, what, what, what is your advice going forward and what is your sort of redirection if you were going to make some suggestions to people that are in these, these lines of service 
uh, based on what we saw in 2020 and 2021 and so on. I'll let you just run with it. I'm going to let you kind of close it out. And then we'll we'll say a, a thanks and a goodbye on this, folks. I'll, we're going to wrap this sucker up. But I do want to I really want to touch on what what it needs to look like going forward. Yeah, I would say uh, read that oath again. I mean, even read through the Constitution again, read the Bill of the Bill of Rights and reflect on those words. And I would say, especially, you know, I, I know a lot of people in all those professions that uh, claim to have a, a similar faith as me. You got you to gotta run these things side by side because they really do go hand in hand. We have our, our commands from the supreme authority, from God, and, and we have to do our best to, to live uh, by those commands. And then as people who swore an oath to this country and this constitution, really go through that and consider that oath, consider those words that you said and reflect on them and think, did I just say empty, hollow words or do I actually mean what I said? Because if we don't right the ship, it's only going to get worse. Many, many of these people have kids, have families. Do you want America to be worse for your kids than it was for you? Or do you want it to be better? And if that means getting stretched a little bit and, um, you know, uh, you know, I think of uh, the movie Braveheart, how, how at the end uh, he's getting his limbs just stretched and tortured. And I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to you. But can you get stretched a little bit in, uh, out, to go outside your comfort zone a little bit when you see something that's wrong, when you see something that's against the Constitution and you know it is? You know, um, I think of it this way, if, especially for law enforcement— if you knowingly are doing something that is wrong, if you knowingly are working cases that are that shouldn't be opened, if you knowingly are violating people's rights or, or see it happening, you're a party to a crime. You're complicit in that. And that's contrary to your oath. And that's contrary to the laws of this nation. And it should be contrary to everything that we believe deep down. And so I guess that's my my urge to people who are seeing these things, whether you're a cop or a federal agent or in the military or, you know, even um, in, in any number of, of institutions or agencies, you if you see the thing that is wrong, do the simple thing. It's doing the right thing. It may get hard down the road, but it's the right thing to do. And I guess if you don't and your conscience is OK with that and you can sleep at night because you're getting that direct deposit every two weeks, I guess more power to you for that. But the oath does mean something. So please just consider that oath one more time, go through it and just do what's right. I wanted to say thank you to in God's hands in the, in the rumble chat, uh, with a $220, $222, all twos across the board message. We, the people love you guys. God bless you. God bless our American people. That is so well said. Uh, I really appreciate the uh, the rumble rant, but also I appreciate the sentiment of it. And uh, Garrett, I appreciate your time today. I'm appreciative of all the service and the sacrifice you guys have, you and your family, you and Heidi, uh, all the girls. I look forward to seeing you. We have kind of a special treat coming up, I think, unless something changes. You and I are going to be able to sit and do this face-to-face -face again on Friday. And so, folks, mm -hmm. we'll do our best to make this thing happen live. If we have to tape it and, and share it, then we will. Um, I think we might have a full suspendables roundtable. We'll be missing uh, we'll be missing producer Phil, but we're going to have Steve and Garrett and I all kind of aligning um, for not even the same reasons. We're all just going to yeah. be in the same place in Southern Florida, so we're going to try to get together and sit down and do one of these things. I will bring uh, microphones for all, 
and we will uh, we'll have an enjoyable chat, I think. If nothing else, maybe a little bit more lighthearted. But on this Memorial Day, uh, grateful to all of you who have served, grateful to all of you who have friends who have given the ultimate sacrifice in this country, and uh, grateful that we live in a country where we can still remember that sort of thing. Garrett, thanks so much for being my guest today, and thank you so much for being a good example and giving people hope, because as much as they're giving you hope, you are giving them hope as well. Well, thanks for having me, Kyle, and happy Memorial Day, everybody. Amen to that. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. If you like what you heard, please hit that uh, the like button. Please um, please share and subscribe if you if you are interested in getting these more. We do these shows live, 8.30 in Texas, America. That's 9.30 for those of you who are on the East Coast. If you're on the West Coast, it's awfully early at 6.30 in the morning, but you can show up and join us there, too. And uh, if you are interested in sharing it on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and so on, you can do that. It is always available for a replay. If you don't have time for the full show, by all means, take it with you where you go. These Monday shows are always a little bit long on purpose. I figure you've got the whole week to listen to it. And uh, we are appreciative for your listenership. We're appreciative to our sponsors, Catholic Vote, Patriot Coolers. Again, use promo code Kyle there. And you can also join CatholicVote.org. Get a get a free subscription to their newsletter and find out what's going on in this world, what is important. Uh, if you do share and you do give us a five-star review on something like Apple, which we have a link in the show description, we read a bunch of them on the show. And I'll read one right now for you. This one says, amazing job, Kyle. This is by JP Team W, written just this week says, thanks for everything you've done and continue to do as someone who has spent hundreds of hours researching and diving deep into the corruption inside our government and their corporate fascist friends. I understand exactly what balls it takes to go publicly against that machine. Thank you for being one of many. Keep up the great work. We appreciate that. JP Team W, thanks for the review. And um, by all means, put yours on there and we'll put it on the list. We'll see you again on Wednesday at 8.30 Central Time for another Kyle Serafin Show. Until then, folks, enjoy your Memorial Day. God bless America. God bless all of you. And thank you so much for your generosity and supporting my friends. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin. 